ultimately, we want people in this space who are actually pushing the boundaries and actually moving the needle. It's not just easy money. And it's definitely not easy money now. That was Kendall Cole towards the end of our conversation. I mentioned the timing because Kendall is a mastermind behind Proximity. Through his role, he's overseen the disbursement of very large amounts of money, plus building core and strategic infrastructure for the near ecosystem. As his day-to-day -day involves back-to-back -back meetings with key stakeholders, we took an unconscious but successful approach to this podcast. As we take down Kendall's walls to break through the superficial, off-sighted points and really start digging into what drives him and uncovering some mind-blowing alpha about Nier. You'll definitely notice some of this energy shift as the conversation flows on. Some of the topics that we cover are the unconventional origins of the Nier protocol and how they might be the winning formula in the long run. We also cover the evolution of proximity. In particular, I was blown away by Kendall's explanation and vision for the blockchain operating system. It finally makes sense to me and I am bullish. We also introduce a very important conversation, data availability on Near. I wish I could summarize that one in just a few words, but my mind is still recovering. Along the way, there are also plenty of lessons and insights for builders that draw on Kendall's previous startup experience and leverage his bird-eye view on everything happening on the ecosystem and beyond. Without further ado, I'll let you enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Kendall Cole. Bye. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of the Wild User Interviews podcast with me, AVB. Today, I've got with me Kendall Cole the mastermind behind Proximity. Welcome, Kendall. Hey, how's it going? Great. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Have you ever been told that you have a superhero name? Definitely not. I've definitely never been told that. Really? <laughs> yeah. Because usually superheroes have that alliteration, like uh, Peter Parker, Kendall Cole. Can you see it? I think it's That's there. Right. Yeah, I, I can see that. Yeah. I think the alliteration, you're right, definitely helps. <laughs> Claim it. Might as well. I'll take it. Yeah, I know. It's a, I'll make it work. I'm trying to remember this morning, where did I see you last? Because I remember I was sitting outside a venue, like on the grass, just chilling. Was that NearCon or DevCon? I think it was NearCon. It was more recently than that, I think. Not Eat Denver. Were you at, were you at Eat Paris? ECC Paris? Missed ECC and okay. Consensus. I wasn't there either. Uh, maybe Korea? Were you at Korea? I was in Korea, but I remember being more recently than NearCon, which is coming up on a year now, as crazy as that is. Um, right. That's why I was glitching as well. I was like, surely it wasn't that long ago. Here was not. there. Rim was there. That describes a lot of events. Well, Rim, oh, Rim. Yeah. So he was in Paris, but Rim was not. Where else was I? I think this year I've only been to Denver, ETH Waterloo, and then Paris. I think that's it. It may help us solve this puzzle. That, I don't like Honestly, I don't even remember where we had that shirt, but that is a legit shirt. That probably was just memorabilia. So maybe it I was. think I saw it and I think I had to bribe Rim. She suddenly pulled some strings to get me one because I think there weren't many going around and they had already run out. But yeah. That's true. That's, uh, yeah, that's true near swag right there. Because yeah. Mr. Brown's the one who designed the logo. Some serious culture right there. I know. For the history books. Now, Kendall, I'm super excited to have you on for many reasons. The first one is from that undisclosed location and timeline. 
I recall that you mentioned several things about you that I thought were very interesting or yeah, unusual, unique, not the cookie cutter dude running a finance operation. I recall that you studied in Chile or something. Maybe you could just remind me and let everyone know, like, I'm curious what you studied and how did you end up in proximity? Great question. Didn't study in Chile. I was there for a startup accelerator called Startup Chile in 2015. Yeah, government-run startup accelerator, which I believe is still going on and did a really good job of bringing a lot of international entrepreneurs to Chile, which is a really cool experience. The story is quite long of how I got to proximity. In school, studied economics, like something not very computer science related, but pretty quickly realized after I graduated, that was a bit of a mistake. So I started learning to code as quick as I can, blah, 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 joined some startups, did some stuff, failed a lot, learned a lot of mistakes. Chile was one of those. Great time, not very successful of a startup. And then basically ended up after another failed startup in London and started really diving into crypto. Had some friends who had joined Consensus. I was just researching. I basically spent like a summer just researching Ethereum. And every single cool project I came across at the time, I like looked to bait it. And I was like, oh, it's Consensus again. Because it was like MetaMask, Infura, Truffle. Like all, all the hits at that time were the Consensus Mafia. Uh, and they had just opened a London office. So I joined them in 2017 and worked there for a few years, mainly building like random Ethereum things. Like primarily we did a lot of like developer tooling and like kind of developer content built like a decentralized blogging platform that didn't pan out, but definitely was ahead of its time. Saw some cooler solutions come out later. And then I joined, I actually met the near guys at a conference while I was at, while I was at Consensus. And actually it was ETH Paris, I guess like 2019, 2018, 2019. And I just remember chatting, it was Eric Troutman at the time. And he had all these like great, we were just like, I was like, why near? I was like, why would anybody build a blockchain that isn't Ethereum? That's crazy. Like I was like a very all in on Ethereum and, and it was like, this makes no sense. But we're talking, oh, we have this all, I have all these like ideas about like how Ethereum just fundamentally can be built better from the ground up. And we we're talking about things like account abstraction that was like very much a niche topic at the time, native meta transactions, which took a little longer to make it to near than, than expected, but, but did finally make it there. Sharding as a design and how like they had the background to implement sharding, contract secured revenue, like all these ideas that ended up becoming like, and it became eventually a standard. And at the time, like on the edge, and I was like, yeah, actually the vision that they had for the end experience of a blockchain was very similar to the one that I, I was like kind of passionate about. And so like basically just six months later, I was working for Nier. That was like September 2019. And then another year and a half goes by and we had launched the chain. Finally, things were starting to move. And it was like, we basically what we realized is how much like, we were like, thought it was an enormous effort to launch the chain. And we realized it's like, 10, 100, 1,000 times harder to then actually do all of the work after that. <laughs> really, that is just the beginning. And I, that's what kind of led to proximity. We started looking, what are all the things we have to do? And what are the best ways to do them? An area that I was particularly passionate about, and me and Bowen and, and Eugene and, and Vadim, who are the, like the original squad from proximity, we were all pretty passionate about was financial applications. And I, I think we, a lot of us, like the thought was, especially for me, was that crypto really started as a like, DeFi app. Bitcoin is actually just a DeFi app. <laughs> like it, it does one thing, but that one thing is financial transactions. And so it's like crypto to me has always been first like revolutionary finance. And then there's, of course, a lot of other cool things you can build if you can solve that problem. I came in with that wave like 2016 to 2018, definitely much stronger Bitcoin ethos. And like the main problem to solve at the time, the main use case was like financial. 
And I identify as somebody much younger than I actually am. But it's fascinating to see how different generations of crypto, and you could almost slice them like by year, the much younger crop is like NFTs. It's a different. Oh, that's true. That's why concept. I'm so out of touch with NFTs and that crowd. It was just, yeah, I feel like a boomer. I'm like, oh, NFTs, I don't, I have no idea what's going on there. Gaming is like even further. Like NFTs, it was like, I, I like got a crypto kitty on day one. It was like there as it was coming up. Once NFTs got big, I never understood like what was going to make an NFT take off. Like that whole culture side didn't really get, but it did get like the, the beginnings and the tech and like the vision of what it was going for. Whereas like gaming, I'm like even further removed and just, I don't know. Yeah. To me, it's a good sign of an ecosystem growing and decentralizing when there are different people interested in different areas and leading different areas. Certainly NFTs and gaming are not my area, but I do wonder how much of it is like common sense. There were some things that I was critical about NFTs back in the day that kind of played out, but anyway, let's not get sidetracked. Before we jump into proximity, I wouldn't even say today because the other reason why I'm so excited to have you on is because proximity has evolved a lot since I've been yep. paying attention. But before we jump into the on-chain main days, there's a couple of questions that I have. I didn't know that you worked at Consensus. Did you work with Corwin back in the day? Yeah. So not directly, actually, but we knew each other. He worked with, he worked with some other people that I worked closely with. We never directly worked together, though. Interesting. Yeah, Corwin is amazing. He was one of the first 10 guests on the pod. And I don't know if you'll be able to speak to this, but one of the many arguments as we were desperately trying to find Hopium early days, because everybody has the same questions that you ask, Eric, like, why would you launch a new layer one? Ethereum already won. And one of the arguments that were like out there on the streets, the legend was Nier actually has a surprising amount of ex-consensus people and people that were deep into the Ethereum developer world that have now come over to this side. Have you seen any of that during your time or could you talk to that transition or, or how has your perception of the technology evolved? There's a couple of interesting things to talk about there. Yeah, getting people from consensus is an interesting one. I, I think one thing that was really fascinating to me when I joined Nier is that mo like almost everybody there at the beginning, they were not like crypto people. They weren't like all in on, oh yeah, Ethereum, I'm Bitcoin. Like they, they were like all believed in crypto, but they came at it from a very different angle. It was more like, this is just really interesting tech. And a lot of them had worked at like Facebook and Google and in different places like that. And they were like, we, yeah, we just, we saw things going towards the future we didn't love and then got really deep. And then everybody at early Nier was like a hardcore engineer. Like they went very deep. And they were like, one, we, we think we can build it better. That was also a bit of a cultural thing. They're like, we think we can just like from the ground up do things in a much like more technically robust way. And then, and two, yeah, they, they like, they actually, they didn't care about DeFi. A lot of the other people, I was like the first one who came in. I was like, DeFi. What's interesting is that that ended up actually almost being like a good thing. I think that maybe the things that are going to make near successful in the next five years are like actually this a very different approach to crypto that was a, a little bit painful in the beginning, maybe. But then ends up near, like near is very different. And there's a couple of roadblocks ran to like when getting integrations with like different exchanges and things like that, because near was designed in such a different way. Cause it really was just like from the ground up reimagining of how you could do certain things. And, and while that, that at times has led to some friction, I think it only pays off, but sorry, that's just like a little bit of a tangent, but getting back to the kind of consensus people or go ahead if you want to. <laughs> yeah, that is a beautiful tangent because this is a crazy story. I don't know how much of this is public, but back in 2021, 
someone at an F asked me to do an interview with this Argentinian influencer. She's huge, Catalina or something. So I was doing my prep for the interview. I'm not even sure if they ever published it. And I started going back in time and I found the original blog posts from Ilya leaving Google, founding Near.ai, and then that sort of like slow drip evolution into Near. And I think that you touched on something that many people may not realize, and maybe it's one of those narratives that we may want to try to harness. This may be a good uh, thing to juxtapose with the boss and being all multi-channel friendly. Because I think that we have an insider-outsider dynamic. If I were cynical and I wanted to have a fantastic clip for TikTok, I would say that if you look at the Ethereum ecosystem and most L2s, it's very incestuous. It's roughly the same people with the same mental models doing basically the same, like a different layer of abstraction. And they keep adding, plugging these, abstract that. But near team seems to come literally from the outside. If, if you read the early Ilya's post, he's, I was doing like parallel processing and all this like very heavy computation work. And then I spoke to someone on Ethereum and they told me about the challenges that they have. And I wondered, why are we not doing the same things that we do in the real world? And I think that's where a lot of the concepts around dynamic sharding, et cetera, come in. I even know from conversations with Sasha from Human Guild that those early engineers were all like maths and physics, like competitive programming, not the usual crop that may have gotten into Ethereum, like maybe earlier days, maybe more value aligned. Would you be able to comment on that potential insider-outsider perspective? And maybe I'll throw it into the mix. Are there any other blockchains that may have a similar pattern? And the academic blockchains come in, something like a Cardano or like a, a Algorand. People are just doing things from scratch and the benefits or detriments of that. That's a good question. The insider-outsider, I think it's... That dynamic definitely existed and that at first it was, I don't know that outsiders are right, but it was like pure technologists who were just like, this is an interesting problem space. And we do think that there are applications that maybe like right now the technology is not even ready for. Like actually the real, when I first came in, like the use case everyone was super excited about was decentralized social and, and things like that, which is funny. It's like has come full circle now. And I think ultimately that's actually like a really good thing. But like crypto was not ready for that. Even though Vitalik was talking about it in 2017, 2018, 2019, the tech just wasn't there. There weren't like scalable blockchains that people wanted to use, but yeah, and there were no L2s or anything like that. And so it really, it was a little bit of ahead of its time, which was like some of the conversations and realizations that we had was that like, it's even if we want to get there, we have to, like the industry has got to get there too. And so that, that kind of, there was less of a focus for a while. And, and ultimately that was probably the, the right call was for it not to be focused. But yeah, it, like because of like the use cases that I think the early near people were excited about were a bit different than what sort of like the industry consensus was. It was it very much was this outside perspective. And like the people that that Ilya and, and Alex were recruiting tended to not be people from crypto background for at least the first like 20-ish, 20, maybe 30 people. And then things started to change as we started to have to go to to go to market. It, it was like we, I remember we were like survey talking to everybody in this space at the time. And I remember it's like Sasha, who was leading media at the time was saying this. He's, I basically talked to every single person in the entire space and I'm then looking for new people to talk to. And there aren't any because at the time in 2019 and even really early 2020, the industry wasn't growing very quickly. So Sasha was basically like, like running out of people to talk to <laughs> because Sasha, Sasha Hoodsland. Yeah. And that was, yeah. So basically what that led to is we realized like, okay. We, like, we have to sell to the industry that exists and the people who are here. We can't sell to like new people and we can't sell to the future use cases because there's no one to use that. 
And that's when I think things started to like, like there was a very stark realization of we have to get a little more crypto native. I was pushing that because I was like, those are the use cases I was excited about. But like that, that started to really happen. And we started hiring more people from consensus and who had crypto experience, like not necessarily from consensus, but there were a few. We had quite a few people from consensus, actually, who are still around. Mali, Danny, Lasorio, Maggie. She's consensus as well. Yeah, she was also consensus. Yeah. If you don't mind, can you say names? Like top 30, highly technical, not initially crypto native, like Bowen, Vlad. Like yeah, literally every single one of the early people. So like Max, Bowen, Vlad, Gucina, Eugene. Yeah, the list goes on and on and on. The reason why I ask is because first, several of those names are running for the NDC. And I see three camps. There is the foundation camp. There is a builder's technical camp. I'm not entirely sure where Pagoda sits, maybe like a split in the middle. Then there's like a grassroots camp, more like regional, some South America, some Africa. And yeah, I've personally got my strong views on who would be best suited for these roles. I think that it goes down to the cliche of having to unlearn to do something. And that's why the insider-outsider dynamic, or you may describe as like a push and pull dynamic, is so fascinating to me. It's, and I think this is what has limited growth on Ethereum. If we can only think of product based on the technical capabilities that we have available, your products are going to look very different. But if you do it the other way around, and we, if we think, okay, blue sky, what problem do we want to solve? What is the product that would match that problem? And then we try to reverse engineer a blockchain capable of scaling to that, then it's a completely different solution. And I think from what you're saying and from what I've seen, that's roughly where Nier started. If you want, while we're on this topic, I would like to fast forward to 2022 because it seems like we started with like outsiders, blockchain for mass adoption. Then we realize we need crypto people, uh, you know, almost a stepping stone get validation, get traction, early use cases. But the ultimate goal is still mass adoption. Right now we're doing, I'd say, a lot with the crypto community, conferences. We're going much more developer heavy. We're also going super hard with like Web 2.5 and those like corporate partnerships. How can we try to reconcile, or I guess, put in a timeline, not just where we are now, but where we're going. And uh, I guess my two thoughts are, is there a master plan? Are we working towards something? And the second one is try to be very mindful, especially as a community, contributors of OGs, not to let what we're doing right now define who we are as a blockchain. Understand that we're here now, but we're working towards that and it's going to keep changing every day. Absolutely. So is there a master plan? There's always a master plan. I think what's also true about the master plan is that the master plan is also always changing. And there's not really, that's just how it has to be. So like with the, the most important thing is that there's like a, a vision and that vision should be fairly constrained, but also it, it is going to shift. I think that you can have a very high level vision of like where the future is. Like I want X to be true, but not much more. You can't really pick out much more than that because there's just too many things that are going to affect what it is that you're doing. And so it's, I think. If you asked Ilya what his master plan was in 20, 2018 and what it is now, I think actually it would sound pretty similar, but everything that happened between those two points in time definitely went completely differently than Ilya envisioned. <laughs> and, and same for me and same for, I think, everybody. And it's, yeah, it's like, 
you have to be adaptive. And you also have to realize that like the way people are going to end up using your technology is always going to be different than like maybe you intended. And that's okay. What you have to then do is like really latch on to the fact that people are getting extreme value out of something and make sure that you go really hard on that thing people are getting value out of. So that was like the long way of saying, like, yes, okay, what does the master plan look like? We can talk about what it looks like right now. I think that we talked a lot about mass adoption and we've always talked about we have to grow the industry and all those things are true, but maybe what's, what actually I, I did believe then and I still do, but I maybe didn't believe in between, which is the funny thing. I don't know that I believe this as much in 2021, 2022, but I definitely believed it in 2019 and I believe it even more now is that the crypto selling to the crypto industry itself is actually a pretty good idea. And, and what's good is that the crypto industry in 2023 is actually a lot bigger than it was in 20, even though it feels a lot smaller than 2022 or 2021. We've, we've made a ton of progress. If you go to the conferences now, even in, we're pretty deep in a bear market right now. And there's a lot of people at all of those conferences. ETH Denver was like the biggest it's ever been. ECC was crazy. I've heard Career Blockchain Week is pretty crazy. Fortunately, not there. Like there are still a lot of people around. It's still a very big space. And I think that especially when we are in a time though where the industry is not growing again, right? That's where it's 2017 was more like 2021. 2019 is more like 2023. Like we are in a, 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 a state of kind of stasis again. And I think that what that does mean is that it, it's difficult to sell to people who are not in the space. Like there, it's not impossible. There are these web two companies who are interested in, and there's a lot more that get it now than got it before. And so there are, there's some that are even doing really great work, right? Like I think Starbucks and others like actually get what the tech is useful for and are doing some industry stuff. And Visa's come a long way. Like they've been announcing some interesting stuff. PayPal is launching like a stable coin and actually it's going to be a really good arm. There's all, there are more people who get it, but that actually shouldn't really be the focus right now. And the reason is that what actually sells those companies isn't like people who come up with these new solutions that are tailored to the enterprise. It, actually what sells them is that they look at crypto selling to crypto and they're like, who, is, who are the big players within the industry? And that's why like, Ethereum is, is still the obvious choice is because Ethereum is like the class in the industry. And so Ethereum is almost the IBM where nobody gets fired for, for building on Ethereum because that's, that is the one, even though it's actually not the best for certain use cases. Like PayPal launching their stablecoin, they had to launch it on Ethereum. They actually had to for a couple of reasons, but it definitely is going to just shift the use case they can go for and probably actually doesn't map up that well with what the best use cases for PYUSD are going to be. So we'll see where they go. The big problem that PayPal has is that their exchange rates and the fees they charge you are so shit already. Sure. There's just no way that they're going to be able to add the cost of transacting on Ethereum on top. Um, no, I, I think that's really interesting. There is something implicit in the words master plan. That is the way that I perceive it. My Machiavellian head. It implies that there is part of the plan that it's not really public or it's just not widely understood. And I actually invited you on the podcast because I don't want to disparage Ignis DeFi. I'm sure it is a prolific, professional, brilliant, wonderful substack. But it was shocking to me that one of the things that I've been the most excited for two weeks, or I think in a long time, was mentioned by you in a substack that I don't think many people at all in near has seen, and definitely not a narrative in the ecosystem. And that's when I started thinking like, huh, maybe there are people that are working towards something that it may be too early to tell, near ships first and we market later, maybe. Auto, although we have tried to shift that because there are benefits to marketing first or marketing earlier than you're comfortable with, at least. We need to bring back the near cats. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I think if you go to my Twitter and you look at the pinned photo, 
as Ilya talking to one of the dudes from Animoca. In the photo, I'm actually holding Ilya's phone because he pulled it out and he showed the Animoca dude this like flowchart of all the shit that needs to be built for like his vision to actually play out. And he hands over the phone to me and you can't really see the screen, but you can see my face. I'm like, what the fuck? It's just like a thousand things with arrows flying in every direction, words I've never seen before. I think that's what I referred to by master plan. In my head, and I may be overthinking it, there are there is a smaller group of people that understand things at a level that don't really need to be explained now because they may be confused. Like we just don't want to be in protracted debates on Twitter, on hypotheticals, on people that have made it a habit to debate about shit they're never going to be able to build for years. I think that these people are just fucking shipping. I had an experience with Alex Kiyoki where he mentioned, oh yeah, JavaScript virtual machine too, coming in September, maybe or maybe not at near APEC. And I was like, dude, why didn't I know about this? I've been pushing JavaScript for months. Everyone's running into some challenges building in JavaScript. This is part of the narrative of identifying where we are now and where we're going. Would have been really fucking useful to tell people, hey, give it a go now. If you have any limitations, V2 coming soon. So yeah, I, I think that's a, the master plan I'm alluding to. No, that makes sense. Yeah. If there's anyone who has the master plan, I think it's definitely Ilya. <laughs> and then the rest of us have our own sort of versions of that. And the good news is that a lot of times they're very aligned. And yes, so there's always, there's a lot of things that work in our proximity that we haven't really talked about just because it's, yeah, for exactly that reason. It's okay. I'll explain why. And you, you already pretty much hit it. It's that. There's just different ways to, to take things to a broader audience. And there's different times when it's easier to take things to a broader audience. And there's also just like the way you package it. And especially, we always work on very technical things, first and foremost, Ed Near, and, and things that we can't even necessarily explain that well without 14 pages of spec or something. <laughs> and then that gets boiled down to one pager, and then that gets boiled down to other versions of that. And then there's the other side of it, which is, so we don't necessarily know how to explain something in a, a way that's concise or even just actually valuable to even like the target audience. And then it's even harder, like near, like the other thing that's really difficult about a layer one blockchain is that you have so many different target audiences. I didn't want to interrupt you, but I was going to ask who are these target audiences? Because coin go up versus actual user versus developers that you may want to attract and inspire like very oh, yeah. different audiences. 100%. There's, so even of the token holders, which is obviously an important one, there's a, large subset of token holders. You have everything from like institutional investors to just individual holders to people who actually just only have tokens because they want to pay for gas. And then you have people like in each of those subsets, people who have different views and like different rationales. So you can't even really treat those as one, one kind of unique group. Then you have developers and, and there's a lot of types of developers. You have developers who are actually involved in changing the core protocol itself. You have developers who are building in, like tooling, not even infrastructure, but tooling for building on the chain. Then you have infrastructure developers, which are broken up in a lot of categories. And then you have smart contract developers. And then now, especially with Boss, we have an entirely other subset of developers, which are like people building Boss components and then tooling for Boss and all of this. So then we have developers. Then we have validators. And validators, again, broken up into a lot of groups. You have hobbyists, you have pro validators, you have exchanges. <laughs> and institutional valid and like investors who are like large holders who just want to run a validator. Yeah. And I don't think we, and then users of the applications built on top of near and a lot of them in, and maybe in the best case, don't even know what near is and they shouldn't, they should just be thinking I'm having this great experience. 
And so you have to figure out like a story for all of them. And then the rest of the industry and the rest of the broader tech industry. So I'll give an example of Boss. Boss started a long time ago. Eugene actually built the beginnings of Boss for Near Social. And we were talking about it at NearCon. I think he'd been working on it for a while before then. And here we are almost a year later. And somewhere in between then, NearCon and when we finally announced it at Eddie Denver, there, there was like a lot of internal shifts around, hey, there's, this is really powerful and we can, this is huge. And we can actually do a lot of really interesting things with this. And, and we, we like a lot of people in near were working on that for at least a few months ahead of the announcement at East Denver. And even the announcement at East Denver, we were like, we're, we don't actually have a great way to talk about this to all of the audiences that are involved in near. And we made a deliberate choice that we were going to create the messaging specifically for only a subset of those audiences and specifically the one we were ready to talk to, which is mainly like developers of these applications, like sp and almost specifically DeFi applications, like people who actually cared about decentralized frontends. And the reason that we made that choice is like, we did not know how to talk to near token holders and explain to them at the time why boss was a good thing, or even talk to some of the projects on near and explain to them why boss was a good thing, because it, it's boss itself is a multifaceted thing that has like a lot of moving parts and a lot of pieces. And so that was, yeah, I think that's how a lot of the, the things that people in the near ecosystem are working on in the background. That's the process that a lot of them go through, especially the more technical things Like you probably saw, I mentioned like data availability. In, in that Ignis piece, which is we're really excited about, but it's also like, that is a concept. If we all of a sudden just said, oh yeah, like near has this really exciting data availability product. It's like, there's only like maybe a few hundred people in the world who care about data availability right now, if that. And so going out to this broader audience with that type of messaging just isn't going to resonate very well. It's not gonna like, hit the right people. The content itself isn't gonna be specific enough to actually matter for the right people. And then, yeah. Everybody else is going to hey, hear mate, it. Hey, mate, how's it going? Sorry, I just had to call Ricky because I basically broke into the powerhouse office. <laughs> it was like 8 a.m. I just made my way in. This is empty. And now that nice. people are starting to arrive and they're giving me weird looks, I just called Ricky. Hey, just making sure I'm okay to be here. I'm that guy. did a podcast, needed the internet. <laughs> Invite me once and I'll never leave. <laughs> That's really interesting. I think that when you look at communication, the challenge is we need to find a hook but the reality is that, especially for like developers, you're not going to get the information that you need from a presentation at December. Dude, this podcast keep getting like two hours, three hours. And I feel like we're still like barely scratching the surface. The reality is people need to go and read the documentation. They have to go and like build shit. They have to go and talk to people about it. Like it's very hard to get the message out there. Like for instance, if you look at the tweets and, and the content that Joe has created around Boss, it's fascinating that for him as a developer, it starts clicking and the layers start unfolding as he's building. This is someone that literally organized a hackathon for Key Palm that has his own gateway for near social. Like, you just got to go deep. There's no replacement for that. I think that the challenge is how can we package the communication in a way that makes it interesting for people and, yeah, encourages them to go and dig deeper. Yeah, you're exactly right for developers. You need a hook. You need like, why do I need this in my life? That's always the first message. What are you solving for them? Why is it way better than anything else? And then you need just a lot of examples for them to try, right? And I think what's interesting about Boss, yeah, it, when, it, when we first were talking to teams about Boss, I think the, the conversion rate of getting people excited in the conversation was really high. But it took 30 minutes, basically, before we could really communicate it and hit the right points and get it across. 
And there were a couple of calls we had that were pretty interesting where people were like, why are we even talking? And then we like go into this whole thing and anyway, so the other side. Yeah. And, and, but so as just because we were talking to other ecosystems, right, which is what's been really fun about Boss. But that was like a shift in, in the sort of like culture and, and who we were working with. But yeah, as we've gotten a lot more examples and, and things we can show people now, like the process, usually we get an intro. I send them like the Polygon, basically like the Polygon kind of partnership that we did and, and what we built with QuickSwap. And they pretty much get it after that. That's pretty much like we can show, not tell now. It's like we could tell pretty well before, but it, yeah, telling always takes a while. Whereas now we can actually show. And showing is infinitely better. So if it's the, on the way. Yeah, it, it is. To convert the most amount of people, showing is the only thing. Because to me, the near thesis is very simple. Build experiences, get new people. Crypto people, great. I think that the killer is new people, they experience crypto with this user experience. And then it makes it very hard to go through the ecosystems. In 2020, you had a layer one thesis. I wasn't really married to any chain. I did shit on Phantom, Avalanche, Solana. They're all kind of shit. I mean, they're not shit, but the user experience is the same as everywhere. And then yeah. when you have to go and add more collateral or something, it's, it's bloated, it's slow, Solana crashes. Like the joke at the time was you can't get liquidated if the blockchain is literally not working. I never liked that joke because yeah, there are some yeah. horrific things that can happen <laughs> as a result. Yeah. As a chopping block guy said, your losses are now on someone else's balance sheet. That's proximity's balance sheet. <laughs> yeah. But sir, before we jump on the boss and the master plan for proximity and some of my thesis for the near master plan, maybe 35 minutes in, we can say, what is proximity? It's a good question. That's always been an interesting question too, because what we've been doing has definitely shifted. But first and foremost, we've always just been, I guess you could almost call it like a combination of research and development for Nier. We have a product team that tries to solve some of the hard application layer product problems. And there, there's a lot of good team solving problems, but like that application layer is usually one that's under underdeveloped. So that's one area that we've always focused. How would you define that hard application layer problem? It's probably easier to give some examples. Uh, yes, so I'll show, one. don't tell. Exactly. I'll give one that I've given a few times, which is Aurora is an execution layer on Nier. And a lot of people don't realize that it's fully interoperable with Nier and has been actually for a while. What was less true is that calling, like going from Aurora to Nier, like if you have an Aurora smart contract calling a Nier contract was all, is only recently possible. But it's actually been possible since the launch of Aurora to go from Nier to Aurora. So that was, and we wanted to prove that to people, but there was a lot of tooling, like it was a little messy and there was like, you needed examples. So we did some work. We, Eugene and Vidit did some great work to, to show that was possible. And then Ref actually took that example and implemented it. And you've actually for a while been able to trade on Tri-Solaris from Rev because that is possible. That's a problem where we knew it was possible. Someone just had to go and do the work and the work was messy and required a deep understanding of Nier. And so we did that work. And then everything we do is open source. Like we don't run anything. We just create open source stuff and publish it on GitHub. Then we go sit down with teams and walk them through how they can do this stuff. That's an example of a, a deep application of the problem. Boss is almost another one, right? Boss is not a proximity product per se. But uh, a lot of the exploration that Eugene did or that led to Boss was Eugene and his building of, of Neo Social and the virtual machine for that. So that's another example of one. So technically, Eugene, the dream is proximity. From a deep tech perspective, definitely. There's no question. <laughs> Eugene, the dream, yeah, definitely drives a lot of, of near proximity, Rame proximity. See, I, I really liked, it's very heartfelt. 
when you messaged me after I stepped down for the marketing DAO, bring support and whatnot. And I thought it was hilarious and partially true. You were like, oh, how can I help? And I was like, hire me. Uh, we could entertain ourselves thinking what I would actually be doing at proximity. But it's interesting that when you have a crop of early top contributors, such as Eugene and Matt Lockyer, it can actually be hard to place them in any one project because you want them to keep adding value to the ecosystem as a whole. But the role can be so diverse that it's just challenging to put them in a box. And yeah, I, I think it's really good to see that proximity has been really flexible to enable that talent to be retained and just deployed wherever needed. Because I think that maybe another example of that hard application layer problem that you've described, if we touch on Matt, would be the NETH, the MetaMask yep. deployment on, on Near. Also another good one, yeah, that we tackled. That Matt in particular, and, and Eugene, but yeah, Matt definitely carried the heavy lifting on that one. I'm learning HTML and CSS, so the next time you're hiring. Yeah, we need so much of that in particular with Boss. There's so much, just like yeah, applications that need to be built. I told Kyoki that the Boss actually inspired me. It was a mix between the Boss and seeing how this components world is shaping up, but also ChatGPT. I actually like Claude uh, from Anthropic a lot better. But yeah, it's inspired me to go back and learn how to code. Like now I do, I can split my screen. I go through the free code camp tutorials. I've got the super skilled and patient mentor next door and I'm working my way through. So yeah, watch out. I may be and scooping some bounties at the next hackathon. You know? Please do. And yeah, GPT-4 is, or, or cloud, yeah, either one is, is such a level up for uh, coding productivity. It's crazy. Vadim, Vadim in particular, and also the Jutsu guys, are really passionate about uh, generating boss components using uh, GPT-4. So that'll definitely be coming before too long. Okay, I think that you're definitely more in tune with this because Jutsu is another thing that I saw like bare bones when it came out of a, a Banyan hackathon. And it seems to be evolving into these like wild shit. Can you describe it to me? What are they doing yeah. now? Yeah, I have the benefit of Zahid's based here in the Bay, as is Cameron. So I've, I've been able to, to to spend some time with them. But yeah, so we'll start it as Nearpad, which is like, you could almost think it was like VS Code for boss, I guess is what I would describe it. It's, it's basically like an, yeah, it, it's like an IDE for, for boss and just creating like a developer platform, making it really easy to build and manage boss components, split them up, figure out different files, load them together because boss components are composable, which is powerful, but also like a pain without some developer tooling to, to use effectively. And so that's what Nearpad started at is really still is. And now they're called Jutsu. And uh, yeah, they're still very much going down that path, just making it way easier for developers to develop with boss. And there's a lot of work to be done there. So I'm super excited about that team. And Zahid is, is definitely a force, very talented guy. So it's going to be good. I am excited. Or, I know that in the evolution of proximity, there's also been a transition or, or I guess there was an era that was more product heavy. Can you, I don't know how much you can share, but I, I'm really curious to hear from you how you see that evolution from proximity being more involved with ref finance and borrow cash. And perhaps some of the challenges of building like Rust native applications, what are the sort of applications that we deem as like necessary for a blockchain to be taken seriously, especially during a DeFi summer bull run. 
transition of those applications over to the community and I guess the next phase or, or the current approach of, of proximity dealing with that uh, consumer end of applications. When proximity first started, there really was no meaningful DeFi on there. There was no DeFi on there. I think there were zero live DeFi applications. Maybe Ref was like just coming up, but yeah, what happened is we, we realized that Near, near at the time was not the easiest place to build. I, I think a lot of what near has in the like years runtime and all the tooling actually does make things easier than building for the EVM, but without examples and best practices, which is how developers mainly learn, that's not really true. And so we were like, we need those examples and best practices. And, and we also need DeFi and we have some people who are really talented who want to contribute, but they, they need some help and they're good devs, but they just, they need some help, like getting up to speed with how near works and like what to do. That was what we spent a lot of our early time proximity doing was like working with the ref team to just help guide them from a technical perspective, really. Like these are the way you can do certain things. These are like the right trade-offs, wrong trade-offs, et cetera, et cetera. And ref now is doing amazing work, like amazing work. And yeah, just has an epic large team and doing great stuff. So, so that worked out pretty well. Burrow was pretty similar, whereas we need a lending market on, on a money market on near. There's a couple of like tricky gotchas to be solved from just like a tech perspective. To, to make this thing work. And we need some examples of how to do it. And so we just took on the work of just essentially architecting what a money market on here could look like. And then working with primarily a lot of contributors in the ecosystem to make Burrow happen and like help people run it and make it actually launch. And Ref team helping out a lot there too. And especially running things now. So that was like, those are a couple of the early days of, of proximity was really like, let's use our vast experience in here. And like I built a lot of products in here. Eugene was the amazing, like the, the ultimate smart contract master and was like, knows that runtime in and out because he was responsible for a lot of the architecture of it. Deem probably the greatest full stack dev from like the early days of near because I mean, that, that guy is running so many important pieces of near just like on his own and you're out of interest. And so like that kind of crew. And then we were fortunate to get Matt Locker on too. It was like similar to Vadim just you know, can just build apps, a version of absolutely anything, solve whatever problem you give him and is like very just dynamic as we've seen with Keypom and other things he's involved with too. And then Bowen, of course, like able to help and Rim able to help put a community and build the BD department and kind of all those roles around everything. So that, that was what we basically just tried to use, like share, share the experience we had with early teams. And that did involve a lot of writing code with teams. Like we didn't want to operate anything, but we wanted to help teams in whatever way we could to get things up. So that was like the first like era proximity, which lasted like, I don't know, probably six or so months. And the second era, fortunately, what we wanted to get to is, was that we actually got away from the building and we were like, everybody else is building now. Like we have a lot of talent entering the ecosystem. Now we really just want to focus on like facilitating talent and doing whatever, like whatever we have to help teams be successful and, and help bring more talent to the ecosystem and help cultivate it. And that was like the next six months. That was probably like, or like late 2021 through like mid to late 2022. And then what ended up happening is I think with the proliferation of boss and some of the opportunities around that, the realization that the, like the DeFi ecosystem on Nier does have some really core teams who are extremely, who, who can basically do a lot of the things we were doing as proximity, even better than we could, <laughs> like building the products, of course, and then bringing other talent into the ecosystem. And just making sure that, that this ecosystem is still healthy. And obviously, we still help out there as much as we can. It's still really important. But what, what we've been able to do is, is almost shift back into that product building mode, but with Boss rather than with DeFi. So it's almost like a new era where it's we started and we helped a lot of teams build product. And that was the focus. Then we shifted. Third into, era. Yeah, third era. Yeah. So first era, like 
heads down, helping teams build. That was really the focus. Second era was like enabling teams, like recruiting more teams and then enabling teams. And that was the entire focus. Like we didn't have to, even on the open source side, like we did a couple of things like need some other examples, but we didn't have to do much because a lot of teams were solving problems. We're almost always just like pure advisors. And we did some funding and grants and, and, and investing and things like that too. And then this third era is almost like a little bit of a callback to the first era, but with a new kind of paradigm, which is boss. We're trying to do what we did with the DeFi ecosystem with boss, where there's, we started not a lot of builders in DeFi on near. So we helped just cultivate the building on near. Then we were able to be more facilitators with boss. Same thing. Nope. There was nothing on, on boss, right? No meaningful application, like zero when we started. And now there's, there's a lot of like grassroots devs who have done amazing work, but there's also a lot of production applications now. And yeah, basically we just started, we're like, we'll build some examples. We'll build some production applications and we'll like commission, work with teams very closely, be like very hand on the wheel of getting these early production boss applications built. And that's definitely still where we are, but we're starting, I think we're in this like about six months now, and we're starting to see that we have amazing builders like Zahid. And a lot of teams we talk to and pitch them on boss, they're like, yeah, we'll build the component ourselves rather than us like having to build it or give someone a grant to build it. Like that is actually starting to happen. And we're starting to get to the point. I, I think we probably still, this is going to take longer because we're not in a bull market anymore. And, and just like the things are a little more in stasis. So it, it takes a little more time and effort to get the, the, the wheels spinning. So probably we've got another six months of this phase at least. But yeah, I think it's the signs are showing that that kind of escape velocity is starting to emerge. Oh, big statement. Escape velocity. Starting to emerge. Like I said, it's still a, a long ways to go, but I, the early signs are that, like you look at the number of components that are published every week on near.org and you look at the different projects that people are bringing into the space, specifically around boss. It's like you can, those now it's more like the network effects. You're starting to see the beginnings of them. And like we, like I said, we can go to teams and show them, not tell them. And then they can go do their own research and just start looking for random components and find a lot that we didn't even know were getting built. That's what I mean. It's just like those network effects, those early pieces are like just now starting to emerge. Interesting. Okay. I'll, there's so many things here, but what I like is that as we touch and bits and pieces along the way, eventually all things converge. Is there a tension between building or near? at any point in time since 2021 and new components being added to the stack progressively, like almost to the point where if I have a great idea, I would be better off sitting on the sidelines now or maybe contributing to some of these like pieces, say a boss component, as opposed to building the full application now or building the full application in the traditional 2021 way versus as a blockchain operating system stack. How do you see that matrix now of where people fall and how to, because the challenge that I see is how to promote the building and how to attract people when things are constantly coming online and we know it's going to keep getting better, like a chicken in the egg situation. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think that generally there's returns for being early. You don't get a lot of advantages when you're starting a company or a business or a product or whatever it is. Usually it's like all disadvantages. Unless you're an incumbent, which is obviously just like a different situation. So we'll assume we're talking startups here and like new builders. The only advantage you actually have is seeing things and being able to move on things and take the risk on things before other people are willing to. That's kind of it. And so I think that because of that, there's usually an advantage to being early. 
And especially now, the barriers to building have gotten so low across the board. It's like in crypto for a while, early days of Ethereum, or even before Ethereum, building in, in crypto sucks. Like it was terrible. The first several years of Ethereum, some people argue with building Ethereum still sucks, but like it's night and day from what it was. And I actually like this thing from the Solana communities. They have this, they really embrace this phrase of chewing glass to do, like basically doing things that are hard. And if you're willing to do things that are hard, probably not that many people are. And so you then have like just better odds. And so I, I would encourage people to jump in now just because if you don't, if you have some idea and you're like, oh, I'll wait for the tech to get better and go build it. Yeah, okay, you and like at least 100 other people globally. There's multiple entrants for everything now. That idea, every time I have an idea now, I'm like, this is such a good idea. Nobody else is thinking about this. And then I go on Twitter and inevitably find at least a couple of other people thinking about it. It's, it's really hard to have edge in this DNA. So if you think you've got it, if, if you're like, I think boss is powerful and this is going to enable new types of applications, I think I know what one is, you really should just start building it. If you wait, it might be too late. So I never encourage waiting. If we have a binary, maybe yeah. waiting is not the best thing to compare it with. Because I remember one of the meetups that I went in Melbourne ages ago, organized by Startup Victoria or some shit like that. And this, this giant entrepreneur was saying that first movers hardly ever make money. Basically, you spend all your money trying to crack it. And when you find product market fit, then everyone else just copies you. You have a clean cap table fresh cash, and then you just go straight to market. You're basically competing on marketing or it's a very unbalanced game. I, th I think that Tesla may be an exception. And even then, it's very likely that they spent all their money cracking the EVs and then all these other companies can just have fantastic cars from day one. So in the boss specific context, and, and, and let's have some specifics, things like a transactions. I'm wondering for an existing product, how much would they have to change your code base if they want to add meta transactions and pay for the user's transactions? The other one would be the fast auth. Kiyoki from Pagoda told me that they're working on SDK with Sweatcoin. And I'm like, oh, so this is pretty fucking good. I probably wouldn't want to deploy my application until I have the fast auth SDK because chances are, even if a substandard application copies me, if they have a fast auth SDK and they have a smoother onboarding experience, that may give them an edge. Key Palm just released V2, JavaScript V2. Yeah, I don't know. I, I do think a lot about the, the tooling and how to build amazing stuff. That's a good question. There is, the tooling is definitely evolving very rapidly. I guess it really depends on what it is that you're aiming to build. Because the reality of it is that most things can be built now. I think that's like, Something we reached, the point we reached at Nier and even more broadly in crypto, I think that like most use cases, like the, the tech is good enough for most use cases. Sure. There's always more room for scaling. There's always more room to like abstract more from the UX, but you can abstract a lot away from the UX. Like you can, right now you can pretty much let people use your application without ever paying, knowing what gas even is with nearly instantaneous confirmation times. With, without even really needing to be exposed to private keys. Security obviously depends on if you're building a DeFi app for like institutions, then you're going to have to expose the private keys in a way and you need multi-six things like that. But like for a lot of use cases, you can abstract those things away. And all of those things I just said are true on Near too. Yeah, native meta transactions are going to improve and evolve. But like you do not, and you can, so Keypalm is a great example of this. You can already cover gas costs for your users using their trial accounts today and not have any like real regress for your users. And like we were doing that with Neath 
over a year ago, right? These things are possible. It might take you a little longer to build it. You might have to chew some glass, but it, it is doable. Well, yeah, the first mover thing, that's very context. I actually think that crypto is an area where first mover, being the first mover is actually, again, there's a lot of ways to define first mover. So I think that gets messy. So we'll ignore that. But because it's, the, I think the, the tech is pretty much there for a lot of use cases. I think the time is definitely now. The, the good reason to hold off would be if your market is not ready. So that's always the best reason to hold off. Market forces are way more powerful than any of us as individuals. And trying to create a new market from scratch is enormously difficult. And there, I do think that, that yeah, you're, that's not the best way to start a business is to create a new market. It is in that if you can somehow do it, like the, the rewards are the best, but your likelihood of success is definitely the lowest. I think the expected value even is pretty low. You have to be like insane, which is good. Those are my favorite entrepreneurs for sure, is the ones who are like insane and, and want to take on that challenge because you're like a zealot which is those are the most fun entrepreneurs for sure. But I don't think that's your highest chance of success. So if you're like, I want to build a high success product, then yeah, like then you definitely need to be sure that the market is ready and it should be early, but it can't, if it's too early, that's another way to fail. And a lot of in tech, like probably more people fail from being too early than being too late. So that's a consideration, but. So that's okay. actually fascinating, the distinction, because if we used a super simplistic approach of first mover, second mover, you could even say that like Ethereum is a first mover. Technically it's winning, but also losing. No one is deploying on Ethereum mainnet. Now, even within the AVM world, it's a layer two, layer three, Celestia, composability. I would argue that those layer twos are deployments on ETH mainnet. They are deployments on ETH mainnet, right? Yeah, but what I'm saying is if I deployed all my shit on ETH mainnet and somebody deploys tomorrow on our end user application, I'm no bueno. <laughs> For, yeah, of course. for friend tech, like you can't do, actually even friend tech, you can probably do on mainnet, but for certainly for, for near social, you can't do it on mainnet, like zero check. That's definitely true. Yeah. But if you're doing DeFi, Unless... you actually should be on mainnet. You're going to get more TVL on mainnet than even Arbitrum, with the exception of like, order books in a couple of cases. What I like is the nuance around the market being ready and the technology having to time the market. I think this actually ties really well with what I'm passionate about, which is product I think that we definitely need to spend a lot more time talking about products and almost like reverse engineered. Oh, you want to build that? This is a tooling that we have available. I'm going to take a quick toilet break. I want to get back. If you're open to, I'd love to hear more about your first two startups and uh, maybe some lessons from uh, the market at the time. What was the idea? What went wrong? What went right? What was fun? I think building is fun. We need to encourage more entrepreneurs. Crypto, for some bizarre reason, has too many investors, a handful of builders, and not many people really thinking in those zealot founder ways. So yeah, if you're game, I'll, I'd love to hear about that. Let's do it. I'm back. All right. I think I remember you telling me briefly about the idea you took to Chile, but I was also drunk that night, so I may have forgotten. <laughs> we actually... I First, what we did was, and I don't even remember how we started with the idea, to be honest, which is funny. But the first thing we did, we applied to Startup Chile with basically like a, a LinkedIn that was segmented to specific universities. And the best thing we did is we used like a pretty fun growth hack, you could call it that, to get a bunch of very prominent people, alumni from our, our university signed up on this thing. And, and which is also was a funny result. Basically, we like used this alumni chat thing that the university had set up. And I just spotted it to, to message a bunch of prominent alumni, ask him to sign up to this UVA specific, my, my alma mater's specific LinkedIn thing. And they all did. 
And then we eventually got a call from the university who was like, hey, what is this? <laughs> so then we tried to sell the university on the idea and they actually, yeah. Then I learned a lot about, so anyway, that was the first product was like LinkedIn for universities. So we tried to talk to all these universities and quickly realized that selling universities is like a total disaster for a startup because it was going to take, they were like, oh yeah, we evaluate our budget like every like 18 months. So we just passed our most recent cycle. So let's talk in like a year. And we were like, we'll be long dead then. So as a company, so this probably isn't going to work out. So eventually we like roundabout ended up pivoting into recruiting tech software. We had built, uh, it, it looked a little bit like AngelList. I don't know if you ever use AngelList for their job recruiting board. It looked like that. But our, our idea was- painful. I've had a painful yeah. experience of applying for a few jobs there. And I don't think I've ever been hired for a job that I applied to. Oh man, that, so I, I was on the other side of that uh, platform a, a couple of times on both sides. Like I, I like, I actually did. Yeah. I've been on both sides of that platform. At first it was really high signal because it was just not that many people applying and the people who were applying were like pretty into tech and it was like all startups. So like it was actually a pretty good startup job board. And actually part of the reason we, we started the thing we were working on was that it, it had gotten to the point where it got botted to hell. Like it just got spammed like crazy. Like the, you would open up a job there and, and you would get like 500 applications immediately from just like a bunch of random people from all over the planet. It depends like what you had as your filters. But even if you had like a physical location and like all these types of requirements, you would just get spammed to hell. So it was like pretty difficult to use as a startup. To be recruiting. Are these real people that are tech workers that created a bot for themselves to just like mass apply for jobs? Or was it being botted maybe maliciously by a competition to make it harder for you to recruit people? Like what's going on here? <laughs> I'm not exactly sure. I definitely not the competition. I think some people probably just built their own bot. Some there probably were even bots that you could just pay for. And then I'll, some of it was also just like people probably just would batch apply to 500 jobs at a time without actually reading anything about it. They would just like quickly. I think that was happening too. So it's a combination of these that just made it pretty difficult to get any signal. I don't know if that's improved in, in, in the years since, but I, I know that when it first launched, it was like the best way to get hired by a startup and, and a great way to recruit for startups at some point in time. And like around the time we were starting this thing, it had gotten like pretty terrible. So like our idea was like, let's just have, let's like build relationships more closely with the startups do it more bespoke and, and do it that way. And, and actually it was one funny thing from that. And I doubt that, that, that this guy even remembers, but I remember we, basically what we turned into is we were like, okay, we'll just be recruiters, but like for our platform, like we'll do this like handheld recruiting type of thing. And we'll just charge way below market rates as a way to get some traction. And, and we didn't know anything about recruiting, but we're like, yeah, we know tech, like we're engineers. Like we can, we can help people hire engineers. And I remember that we, we, we were talking to Storage, if you know those guys, and James Prestwich. S-T-O-R-J. Yeah, and James Prestwich, who yeah. was one of the founders and, and was still there and has, has now done a bunch of things and we interface with him in different contexts and, and even at Nier at one point. I don't even think he remembers this. And he was like, I'm trying to hire for a, someone with a couple of years of, of Bitcoin experience. This was in like 2015, mind you, not many of those. In Atlanta for like under 120K and like several years of experience. And we're like, yeah, like we can do that. No, of course we could not. There was zero people that met that. Actually, we did find one guy, but he didn't want to work. Yeah, it didn't end up working out. But those are like the only deals we had closed. And the deal for him, for James, we were like, yeah, like we won't charge you anything up front. We'll only charge success and we'll do it for super cheap. And he's like, of course, I'm going to say yes to this. There's no downside. 
But obviously we couldn't deliver and then we made no money on that and it didn't work out. So yeah, that was the first thing. It, it was a bunch of different recruiting tech ideas that we stitched together. And yeah, go for it. Just really briefly, I'm just really curious, as an engineer, I guess with a background in economics, what did you learn about the recruitment and the, the market for human talent? Like, I guess, what was the interest in matching people in the first place? But also perhaps more uh, relevant for current times, are there any lessons or advice that you would give to the Near Horizon team? Yeah, so it's interesting. I don't actually think we learned anything about the candidate side of recruitment from this because we never really, even though we wanted this to be a platform for candidates, most of our time, and I think this is one of the things we did do a good job of, is most of our time was spent like talking to the companies we were hoping to sell to. So who we were mainly talking to, we were talking to a lot of startup accelerators because they all try to help their teams with recruiting. And we built a platform. So actually, the first thing we did before the, the, the end of things, we pivoted away from the LinkedIn we pivoted into this like platform and we were, we, we noticed that all of the uh, VCs and accelerators use this like really shitty job placement platform for their portfolio companies. So we just built a better version of that. And then we tried to go sell these accelerators and these VCs on this platform. So we were talking to some serious heavy hitter firms at the time, which was fun and trying to sell them on this thing. And it mainly didn't work out because it just like the platform was a way better user experience, but like they what we realized is that VC funds don't actually spend very much money on, on anything other than investing in companies. And so trying to sell them software, like they're pretty scrutinizing. And, and the main thing they care about is like cost, like almost so more than anything. And, and so basically we realized that there was not much of a market there. Like we could maybe only sell them on a couple grand a year and there aren't actually that many VC firms out there. And so like the market size on that is just like pretty low. So then we started to try to sell to companies directly. And then what we realized was that the main incentive is it, we were trying to sell to the recruiting leads for these companies. And what we realized is that the way that their job performance was judged was in a couple of ways. One, they cared mostly about top of funnel because the, the two metrics was how many like jobs that they or, or it was like how many applications they got in for the role, what percentage of applicants they ended up accepting. Lower is better. Like you wanted to accept, you wanted to get a thousand applicants and accept like 1% or something like that. And then the third one was like time to close. So the only things they really cared about was like, can we actually help them close the candidates faster? Which we couldn't because we didn't have any users. So like we didn't actually have this like deep pool of, ca of can. And then the other thing they cared about was like top of funnel. Can we actually help them just get more people in? And we also couldn't do that because we didn't have any users. <laughs> so the fact that we had this really great piece of software didn't actually matter <laughs> at all. That was like not even close to a consideration for them. Which is a beautiful, I guess, it's not an analogy because you actually lived it, but it encapsulates quite well what most engineers experience the first time they built something, which is a good solution that it literally doesn't have product market fit. The, yeah, exactly. Uh, especially because you were doing like a two-sided marketplace, three-sided marketplace. What I'm yeah. wondering... And I know that we may be like seven years too late, but I, I do like ideation. I'm wondering if you could have used it as a way to arch. Were you in the Bay Area at the time? No. So those are the other mistake that we made. I wouldn't call it a mistake because like we, we enjoyed it, but we you were decided to do this chili accelerator and we're trying to sell it all these like American and European companies. But I'm, I'm not entirely sure if it was a mistake because what I was going to suggest is, and I am definitely being influenced by my surroundings, I'm in Indonesia now. I think there's a fantastic business model in trying to arbitrage demands from, say, American companies, European companies with 
or yeah, if you could find a way to successfully match talent in across regions would be good. So maybe being in Chile, but connected with the Bay Area. I, I know that Argentina has so a that, massive yeah. engineering export. I think now 100%, right? And what's changed between 2015 and now is that remote work now is like almost the norm. Like not quite the 2015? norm. 2015? Like, um, you were too early. See, you should have waited. Ah? Way too, no, I hate that. <laughs> I would never do anything in the recruiting space again. There's a lot of great people there, but ugh, I would never touch that market. There's a lot of companies that have done good work there. I think it's like pretty, that's like an evergreen one where there's always, it gets so big and it's so important. And it's also always evolving. Yeah, now a lot of companies are, I'll hire someone from any, anywhere in the world. I don't even really care where they're based. And, and that's true for a lot of companies now. So there's always new things you can address there. But uh, yeah, it's tough. It's, it's very much like a cost center market, which is challenging to build in. Because everyone's like really, they're like really scrutinizing you on cost. Because you're not actually, like even though you're solving a really important problem for companies and like they will pay a lot for it. If they can pay less, they, they will happily pay less and even take a little bit of a hit on quality, depending on what it is and depending on what the role is. Obviously, it's different at the highest end of the stack. Like people pay enormous sums for like executive talent or really good like engineering talent or just like really top talent in any like area. But for like the majority of seats at a company, it's really all about cutting costs. And that's a tough place yeah. to build a business. I remember one of the lessons that I learned from my first startup in 2016 was there are expenses and there are investments. It's not the same. Oh, I told yes. my friend who was a lawyer in Dubai and I was like, mate, I'm telling you, lawyers are a fucking expense. Like we pay because we have to. Like regulation is extorting us. We've got to tick all these boxes. Like other things, usually engineering talent and things that may be very specific to what you want to achieve. That's an investment. Like you should see the ROI over time. And look, there are cases where legal is an investment. There is a legal strategy component to what you're doing probably Uber would say it was an, an investment. But overall, making that distinction is super interesting when you are the product. Like you want to be positioned as an investment. When people yeah. spend money okay. on you, they get more money back than what they put in. That is a great place to be in. Being an expense is great when you have regulatory capture. I knew a dude that was working for the company that does the fire alarms in Australia, which is a bullshit monopoly. Yep. They basically extort like real estate agents and landlords, like unbelievable amounts of money to come and check the bloody alarms like every three months or something like it's a great place to be. But anyway, that's a uh, interesting lessons from startup one. You think from that experience, are you more likely to work with people or with engineering? If you could be more like outwards facing consumer or like inwards, like product engineering driven. Yeah, that's a good question. I don't actually think that experience colored that much for me. I would almost say that Nier has almost colored that experience more for me. Okay. Or maybe it's, I think what I've realized is that it's higher leverage to, or rather it's ultimately higher impact to be a lot more focused on people than on the product. That's definitely, I don't think I learned that because that person, we didn't really talk to any, it was not B2C. It was very, it was a marketplace, but we recognized that the only part of the marketplace at the time that we had any shot at was like trying to figure out like the sort of, we didn't really want to be a marketplace. We wanted to just sell software to companies, basically. We had already heard the like, how many miracles startup are you going to be? Like you have to at least be one miracle startup. That's that people are going to buy your software. The two miracle startup is that they're like, both, there's like a marketplace, like two people are going to buy your software. And then a lot of L1s are like many miracle startups because like you have a bunch of moving pieces. So we're like, we want to be a one miracle startup. Like we just want to sell software to companies. So like we, it was B2B. And then my second startup was actually also very B2B. 
And so I, I didn't really even, I didn't know that much about B2C until it's all like consensus and, and then especially near. And, and I, yeah, anyway, like the ultimate thing is I definitely recognize is that if you can build even B2B products and things like that, if you look at the, the most successful enterprise software companies, it's not because they have the best product at all. It's because of all of the other shit they build around the product, which is mainly like the service organization. Like it's the expectations that people who spend millions and millions of dollars on software have, like they're pretty high and as, as they should be. And it's, and the main thing they want is like someone to talk to when shit hits the fan. Obviously the best case is that it never happens and you just have this amazing product. That is of course better. But like few products are actually like that for, for most use cases. And so there's downtime and things like that. And it's, yeah, it's all this other stuff. It's like this people layer you build and the sales organization and all those other layers that actually are your real modes. Like product is almost never the modes. Occasionally, like maybe OpenAI has a product mode right now and Google's had a product mode for a while. But that probably isn't even their product, like their mode anymore. Like as good as Google search is compared to other things, like their ad network is also insane. And they have all these other things that are like built around it. And I think that's, that's where you're going to get them at all. And like Ethereum, Ethereum's tech is not the fucking mode right? Not at all. But the people layer is insane. And it's, it, it, they'll be around for a long time. And it's going to be probably the top for a long time because the people layer is crazy. So I, I think that's what's changed my mind is crypto has made me care more about the people layer and, and less about the product layer than anything I did before. How's this for a title? The moat is the goat. No, it's terrible. We'll think of something <laughs> better. We just got to define the goat, but I, I like where you're going with it. I, the direction's good. <laughs> so we got a candle call. The goat is a moat. We got to run a chat GPT through this one. I'm conflicted because I am intensely passionate about like product. I just think that crypto is very infant and we really need to push the boundaries and build something. We don't really have anything to show on a different tone. I also really what you're saying because I was even reflecting as you were talking about a challenge we may have on near where we're so technical, we've actually, we probably haven't placed the right emphasis or being able to acknowledge and nurture like the community side of things. Because at a company, when shit hits a fan, you call someone and hopefully they can fix your problem. But then when you start going downstream, you tweet about it, you go to a forum post, you talk to your friends, the communication channels never really end. In crypto, your community is that first line. Who is going to explain why the blockchain is good? Who is going to explain how they used a new app and they were excited? Community is something that we've been, we've been fighting for a long time to establish and it's on live support now. And yeah, um, I think that it's about the people. But at, you know, at the same time, I'm <laughs> like you, if it was up to me, I, like, I'm way more interested in, or I guess naturally inclined to product. Like I love products and I love working with devs and building amazing product and like solving really novel tech challenges. But it's just, it's so obvious to me now that it depends what your goal is. If your goal is actually to solve real world problems and get people using your stuff, then unfortunately, it pains me to say it, but the product is just not, it's almost never the most important thing. It's still important, right? Like you still have to have a good product, or rather it's always better to have a good product. And it's always important to invest heavily in the product. And it's, I do think that having a like a very strong product organization that has like product and engineering that have important ins like th that are your leaders. Like they should be part of the leadership team for sure. But it's, yeah, it's definitely not sufficient on its own. If you ignore everything else, you will lose utterly. You will get uh, destroyed by someone who focuses more on the people. Oh. Somebody put it beautifully on a podcast recently. 
a good salesperson can sell a shit product, but a shit salesperson cannot sell a good product. So once again, like for me, it comes down to community. And I do think it is dependent on the stage that you're in. For instance, I think that Ethereum now may have too many vibes and not enough product. And we're like, we like, we reduce the importance of product because we've got good community. It takes a lot of self-reflection to assess whether we're moving in the right direction. I think that Nier may have been the opposite. Nier may have been like, nah, fuck it, the community's dead. But have you seen the bus? Yeah, yeah. definitely like the, especially like the early people in Nier and myself included. It's like we, yeah, I think just like your zone of like excellence is, was like more on kind of product and engineering. But that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where you're most comfortable and where even you like thrive the most. It's if you're building, if you're building something for people, then the most important thing is that they use it and that you do every, put everything around it to get them to use it. And that's. But how do you think about teams and thinking of your community as a team? Because I am not going to code at the level that Eugene codes. And I am sure that Eugene would have a killer podcast. It'd be funny, it'd be dark, it'd be weird. <laughs> it'd be like Alex Friedman vibe kind That's of thing. So but maybe it wouldn't be the best use of his skills. Maybe he should do the coding and I can do the podcasting and we can both have something to do. And perhaps the example that it's more pressing is we ship Ilya around the world on, on every stage and we need someone to communicate and, and there's immense value in building those relationships. But I do wonder whether we're losing a big asset from him not having it as much time as he used to have to do what he does best, which is a coding. And yeah, how can we find and empower people that can be as good or, or really good at communicating those messages on many stages, many conferences, many hackathons without pulling people away from their zone of excellence? Yeah, I think in every case other than the founder, you're exactly right in that really you should just try to create systems where people can spend at least as much time as possible in their zone, like their zone of excellence. Yeah, just really spend as much time there as possible. I think that that makes total sense. Founders, unfortunately, I think is where like that actually isn't even usually the right thing. And the reason is that like the founder, like, you're never going to have a better evangelist than some group of the early founding team and usually whoever kind of the main, like early head of the company is, right? You can change that, but it's really difficult. And I think this happened with Ethereum too, right? Like Vitalik, right? I think there's plenty of people who, you know, or maybe Vitalik would be, his time would be better spent if he could spend more time in his zone of excellence of solving these crazy tech problems and doing all of the, the crazy things he does. But he spent the vast majority of his time being Ethereum's greatest evangelist. And he wasn't the only evangelist, but he's all over the place talking about Ethereum. And yeah, I saw him in Adith Denver last year. I arrived at a hotel. We were going to have dinner. I was meeting with Ozzy and Raymond. He was walking out with a couple of people and they were waiting for a car. And I walked up to them and I was like, hey, are you guys here for Denver? I pretend I didn't know who he was. And I fucked up because my reasoning was that Usually famous people like to be treated like normal people. You don't like to be all these fan girls around you and people taking selfies behind your back and shit. I was like, oh, I'm going to treat him like anyone else. I think I went too low. He just gave me the death stare and this lady just jumped in front of me and she's yeah, nice to meet you. And they just like slowly walked away. And I was like, oh no, Vitalik, if you're listening to this, I know you are. I'm sorry. I'll see you <laughs> at the next one. But yes, 
the only thing I would add to that is sometimes the two things are actually, they start to pull apart quite a bit. Like you may have a zone of excellence, like you're like a thousand X developer or founder, not doing that bad, or I guess less than ideal. But sometimes you're also a really bad communicator. Like I've seen some founders, oh my God, I saw the Polkadot dude when I was in Korea. That dude single-handedly put me off from Polkadot. Had mm. I not seen him, I'd still hold and Polkadot. But sometimes they're just really bad. They're definitely not someone you want to be like too much on the front end. Uh, even Ilya and Shevchenko, some of the events that I see them, I'm the insane person at the back shouting and screaming and clapping. Because I'm like, Jesus, somebody give them like a Red Bull or a bump or something. And I know that if you do the same presentation many times over in some of these conferences, we're all anarchists and shit. No one's paying attention. You can, it's hard to get in the zone. But yeah, it, it is your job, right? You get 15 minutes stage time on that shit. The, the ideal early team is going to be people who have zone of excellences that kind of cover as much of the things you need to do as possible. But almost like, the re it always ends up in the case that the later stage you get, want, there's going to be roles and responsibilities that are going to be placed upon you that are outside of your zone of excellence. And, and that, I think that almost always becomes the majority of your job. And rarely does anyone actually get it back to where like that job is their zone of excellence. It, and it, it just, it requires a lot more effort from them to do those things. And I think that even outside of Vitalik, I think in the outside of crypto, I think you see that all the time. It's like Mark Zuckerberg, right? He's become like a really kick-ass CEO, but he has to do a lot of things I don't think that are like, or that he's even particularly good at, but that's just like part of, that's part of the majority of what he's called upon to do in order to run the company that he does. Even Steve Jobs to a degree. It's like any, like name, like any of the marquee founders. And a lot of the stuff they had to do is not stuff that they were particularly good at, but they, they were, that was just, that was what the, that's what the job is. That's what, so you got it. Depends who you ask, but the Elon Musk's and the Zuckerberg's of the world are clearly aliens. Yeah, that's no, I think it's really reassuring because from personal experience, which might resonate with some people, there's always like the imposter syndrome. It's, oh, I'm doing something really well now. And then if you do something really well, usually more opportunities come to you. But in the back of your mind, you're like, that's different to what I'm doing now. And I don't want to do something different because I'm good at this. I don't want to fuck that one up. But I think that what you're saying is true. Like inevitably the scope expands. So I guess that without framing, I'm wondering, do you have any advice for people? Like what is the right way to approach it? The right growth mindset, mentors, peers, like from your experience. And I guess you could maybe pair that up with the question, are you at your zone of excellence? What are you doing now that you don't like? Yeah, that's a good question. It's not that I don't like certain things. It's just that it, it requires a lot more effort. I think for me, it's, I actually do quite like it, but it is a lot of effort. It's just most of my day is meetings. That's almost all I do all day, every day. And they're pretty exhausting. I don't love being on Zoom calls all day, right? I'd much rather just be like working on doing like what I would consider real work, but it is real work. And that is like what my, that's like what my job is <laughs> like, and no, this is different. This is like way more, it's, I'm like selling really. And I, again, I do like it and it's super important and, but it's definitely draining. And I think that you, the way you frame zone of excellence, it's like usually zone of excellence is like that thing you could just do forever. You get in that zone and it's just like effortless and you're like on top of it. And for me, that's like definitely things more on the product side. I think that would be way more my zone of excellence. I'm best where it's like engineering meets business problems. That's like kind of my sweet spot. If I had to pick one and where I just never get tired, but that's not the most important thing for me to do all day.
and we because we have great people doing that like i there's great people i work with who do that work and it's just it's better if they do it than if i do it. and it's better if i do these calls all day <laughs> i recognize that's that's what i've got to be doing i'm not gonna say i'm offended but to some degree i feel disrespected that this podcast is being placed in the same bucket as some like shitty zoom calls I just that this was different. I just said this. I didn't even count this. This is I'm getting energy from this. This is fun. <laughs> totally. We're different. off the clock. Yeah, off exactly. I, I wish this is. I wish this was how I get to work with great people, right? And especially selling boss and stuff like that. It, it is really interesting, but it, yeah, it's definitely not my zone of excellence. Let's put it that way. <laughs> all your calls could be like this. You're just gonna hire me. If you could make all my calls like this, then yeah, we'll make something work. It's part of it's just acceptance. If you want to be a founder. Or even not, or even just like leadership. I imagine most people that, that we work with, you're going to face that from time to time. If you end up being in a leadership position, I think that usually tends to happen. Is that Because your job is almost more about unblocking everyone else so that the really talented people, <laughs> so that they can spend as much time as possible in their zone of excellence. That becomes part of your job too. Is like making sure everyone else can spend as much time there as possible. And, and you're the one that says, yeah, you, like it's your responsibility to do that. It doesn't matter if you're in yours or not. And a lot of times yours might not be managing those people. So it's like acceptance is important. And then it helps to work with people who are better at the thing that you're getting forced to do than you. This is like advice for that. I'm still learning it because it's still pretty early in this whole thing. But, but like advice that you hear a lot is that like you, the tendency you have when you like are you know, all the role, all the hats you have to wear as a startup founder, like the tendency you have is like when you start realizing you're not very good at something is to like try to hire someone to do that thing who's good. The problem is like you don't really know how to evaluate them in that role because you don't know enough about like what the role is and it's hard for you to evaluate. There's a couple ways around that. Like you can definitely ask for advice from people who have hired those roles or, or in those roles themselves that from your network. That's always good. But, but you'll never, you still won't be able to hire someone very effectively. And even if you hire them effectively, you won't be able to work with them very effectively if you don't understand what it is that they need to do. So you have to have, you have to try it yourself and go through the pain for a little while, and then you can hire someone good and then learn from that and learn how to, but like you won't even be able to effectively work with them if like you have zero content, because you'll just try to toss stuff over to them and then come back a few weeks later and be like, how's it going? And probably it won't be going. They'll be unhappy and everyone will be unhappy. It's actually a really good definition of a good leader. And an example would be Claudio. I'm actually really grateful that he was able to identify what people are good at. And I actually lasted a long time with Metapool. And my role literally changed every six months. Because, yeah, we just like, kept assessing and adapting. He's oh, you're really good at going out there, talking to people, you're traveling. Like, it was very flexible to really enable me to be in the excellence zone. The yes. only challenge is ego. Some people don't like to admit that they're not as good at something, they don't like the maybe the vulnerability aspect. They maybe don't like having people that are below them, like employees or peers that are better at things. I think that ego is the enemy. As oh a, man, that is like such an yeah. If you ever want to cut yourself, like you're yeah, to cut yourself off at the knee, it's like having too big of an ego and being afraid to hire people better than you. You have to kill that immediately if you're a founder because that is like it. But but it's actually worse. They'll hire you, but then maybe this is verging into a psychopathy podcast, but I've lived with a few Leos in my life. They'll hire you, but then they do all this really weird shit to reassert their authority. It's, yeah, I may not have an idea what I'm talking about, but just so you know, I'm still the boss here. Those are the working relationships and you start verging into the toxic 
environment where it's, you're not really letting me be in my zone of excellence if I'm going to be like belittled by doing a good job. Because anyway, if this resonates with you, seek help. My mentality is that I want to be like the worst person on the team at most things. <laughs> I've done a good job hiring if I'm like, if I'm well below what everybody else on the team is, especially and definitely the thing I hired them for. I can confidently say at proximity that like I, whatever the person's role or more like zone, we don't really have roles. It's more like zones. I am a lot worse at that zone than that person is. Like any of the engineers, I'm like, I'm definitely the worst engineer on, on the product team for sure. Like worst BD person on the BD team, like don't know anything about the law compared to Mark or anything about like how to manage finance of an organization compared to Glad. So that's, and, and that's 100% what most of our proximity when we're hiring, it's we're looking to hire experts to come in who can teach us how to do things. But we, of course, I think at the same time, we have to do everything ourselves or have had to do everything ourselves. We at least have some context. We at least know that we're bad at it. We know enough to know that we need to improve. And then we, uh, yeah, I guess it comes down to ego, but I think that gets crushed really quickly. Like when you realize, I, I think those founders eventually get weeded out pretty quickly. Because I think the only founders that ever really make it, with, with maybe a few exceptions, are the ones that like are recognized that you're always only as good as the people you work with. Like every high quality company, it's not because they had one outstanding founder. It's because that one outstanding founder somehow figured out how to recruit other outstanding people. And maybe in and of that self that made them whatever better. But I am old enough to know that is true, but I'm also old enough to sadly acknowledge that the time cycles sometimes can be very protracted. I was reading the book Bad Blood, the story of what's the name? Elizabeth Holmes. Oh yeah, Theranos. Yeah. Batched crazy shit. I think any employee could have told you back to 2013. It was going to end very poorly, but the cycles took many years. And I like the book because it was actually very systematic. The way that she clamps down on engineers, she clamps down on this, the board of directors. It was almost like a domino piece or, or like a house of cards that you're building. And it's going to collapse at some point, but it keeps going, it keeps going. More money, more victims, more crazy shit going on. As terrible as that whole situation was. She was very good at attracting quality talent. I don't think oh, there yeah. are like low quality people. They recruited the best. That would be more of an example of she didn't like to hear like anything that she didn't agree with. Hey, this machine oh, doesn't work. You're fired. Picture. Yeah. It was an unbelievably toxic organization. There's no question. And yeah, so you are right. Like, unfortunately, it is very possible to build a long running, very toxic environment. That is totally possible. And even to get element levels of success before it all, and ends poorly can mean a lot of things too. Like sometimes it could even be the founder being forced out and then the company keeps going or that's happened in good and bad cases. I think there's some I wouldn't agree with and others think maybe I would. So it's definitely there are elements that, but I, I do think that what, what is, so there's a difference between you're still like able and you still understand that you need really good people. Like you're still like, I only want to hire A players and then not trusting them to do their work and creating a toxic culture and like having such an ego that like you're, you want to, like, you don't even want to create that like superstar environment to begin with. And I, I maybe almost nobody goes in as I not going to hire good people. I don't know why you would even ever, that probably doesn't happen for founders. Cause I think it's pretty common wisdom. There's, it's pretty obvious that you have to hire really good people to build a really good company. So maybe that doesn't really happen, but. But this is where the product thing comes in. If you are in the startup world, there is this lore that gets passed down 
And even if you have an internal asset yet, you're at least aware of it. I'm not sure we have a lot of that in crypto, but it is a perfect segue. I would like to learn from you what you have learned about the boss from recruiting experts and from talking to other teams. As we dive into the blockchain operating system, I want to tell you what my vision for boss is now. Great. And then we can reverse engineer from what it actually is or how we're communicating it now. Some of the lessons uh, on how it resonates with people. Are we ready? Yeah, let's do it. I a bit self-conscious because people are starting to arrive and I'm wearing the noise cancelling headphones. So I think I'm shouting, but hopefully everyone is enjoying the podcast in real time as much <laughs> as we are. Okay. So before I got involved with Neo and crypto back in 2020, I was doing a lot of no code. 2018, 2019, 2020, Bubble, Glide. There's a few that I built some stuff with. And I see Boss as like the no code of Web3, maybe like low code. I think that's the angle. Right now, early on, I think we should identify, like literally go to Bubble and see, okay, what are the, all the front end components? What are all the plugins, all the APIs? Like what are the most used things that enable people to build what is actually applicable or what makes sense in Web3? And just get teams out there to build it. I mean, the Paris building, dude, they've got the entire building. They've got the 30 engineers. They've got like really good talent out here. And I think that these are the kind of teams that we can basically tell, okay, we need all this built. And yeah, as you say, that would probably be the escape velocity component. The more components that you have, the more that people can build, the more that gets built. The way that I see it, if I come to Boss today and I want to build, I don't know, a journaling app. We're going to get thousands of people every day going in and journaling. That's a whatever, saying random numbers. Four out of six components are there. My reaction would be, ah, oh, two thirds of the work done. I'll build two. So you take four, build two, new application with real users and the components library keeps growing. That seems like a no brainer to me. Yeah. I mean, you nailed it. I think that's exactly, that's 100% the the promise, right? It's, yeah, we're standing on the shoulders of all those type of companies that have had these visions for ways that like the web could evolve and like the expanding the base of people who could get involved with kind of shaping the web and then trying to do it in a way that targets like a very different segment of the kind of builder base, which in this case is like right now builders in web three, but it's ultimately, yeah, it's beyond that. And I think, yeah, you're exactly right. It's, what's cool is that it's, it's everlasting, right? It's like with bubble that and all these platforms, there's inevitably going to be a little bit more lock-in and there's going to be like even more sort of opinionated types of things that are going to form around that product. And that can be really powerful. Like the best products tend to be somewhat opinionated, but it is a little bit limiting in that like you limit the creativity and, and what people can do with these things. And like bosses, boss is like more of a blank canvas, but uh, at the same time, like we, I think the way we're viewing it is exactly the same way you are, which is like the, and also where we're starting to see that early success is like, when we're like, hey, you should use Boss. And they're like, cool. They go to try to do something and they can immediately find examples and pieces of the work done for them. That is such a different experience than really what you have in crypto right now. Because you can look at Uniswap's front end and that's great, but it's just for Uniswap. And even though there's patterns you can reuse, there's not much in there that you can actually take and use in your application. But if you look at like the swap components that we have, there's like bits and pieces, like they're each broken up into little components and you can actually reuse, oh, here's like a token list I can just plug into mine. Here's like the Uniswap contract, you can just plug into mine. There's little like bits and pieces. So I, I think you're exactly right. The no code, low code is definitely like a precursor to 
or even maybe boss is part of that kind of deal in a way. Funny you mentioned the opinionated, I guess like closed garden approach. Dude, the most embarrassing thing happened to me. I confused, I follow the Glide founder, his Dave, David something, and his name is very similar to a friend of mine. He tweeted some shit about vaccines and I replied to him on DMs. And afterwards I was like, oh, that's not the kind of things I want to be telling this guy. And I was like, how do I solve this? And I think I blocked him. I don't know if the messages disappeared. Anyway, I think I burned that bridge. The beautiful thing is, and what builders usually get excited about when it clicks, it is open-ended. Instead of putting in a feature request and hoping that the team delivers at some point, you can literally just build your own and plug it in. That is a pace of iteration that I think we really need to highlight, not just because it's possible and attract more people, but I'd like to be able to capture how fast it is evolving. Even like highlight components shipped this week and the different ways in which people are mixing and matching the components and even the challenges, because there are going to be a lot of contributors that come in to tackle these challenges along the way. I know that. At least from personal experience, it's slightly weird and clunky to have near.org like a website or what people would associate as a foundation website. And then it goes into a social network. And then it's like, see source code. And it's all there. Like components, I think we're probably reaching the stage where there's too many. It'd be awesome if we could start doing a better job of categorizing them and segmenting yep. them for DeFi, yeah. for front end, for Ethereum, for, but then again, I haven't been building with the dailies. I'm sure that the people that are will probably pass on that feedback. I don't know. Sometimes engineers do like eating glass. So no, nobody, no, we've gotten that feedback a lot. That's usually what we do is we, and, and I think we need to do something to solve this too, but yeah, we have like a list of this components that we want to showcase that we just send to people. But right now it's like a list on Telegram. So it needs to be better. Like we do need. We need that kind of curation to get built in, which is like a, a, a problem in and of itself, right? Like I think, and, and yeah, that opens up like a whole other can of worms. I think there's some really powerful things we can do in curation, but that's definitely like a broad design space. That's actually, so Alex Yoki, he had this, if you notice, there's like a components and an app section. His vision is that apps would be just things that are like production, like kind of groups of components, like end user experiences and like a little bit more like showcase ready. Whereas like a component is more of a building block. So I, I think there's work still to be done on the product side to make sure that works well, but very much curation is a top of mind thing. And it's, it wasn't needed at first. And now it definitely is it's like the more of like over 10,000 components now. Uh, I don't even know how many years now it's that. Cause I, I can tell you, say this is a, this is what being an outsider is worth it. I love when I give feedback to engineers that they didn't see because they know how to code. I forked the component. I tried changing something. I fucked it up. My component is out there. It doesn't work, <laughs> but it's out there. And I know that there's a ton of components like that. Like it's a lot of experimentation. And even being able to mark components that are like the latest or, or associate, hey, you're using these components. There's these other six versions that other people have used. There's just a lot that can be done there, but I'm, I'm happy to hear that the, the team is working on it. Okay. This is where we enter into the conspiracy corner. Are you ready? Let's do it. I tweeted that there's a few things. I've been like reading between the lines and connecting the dots. First, 
This was a question put to Alex Shevchenko at the very end of their weekly updates he does on YouTube. Like, this is his answer. I've, had, I've never seen this anywhere. Somebody asked, oh yeah, blockchain operating system, mostly referring to the front end. Cool, I guess, but does it add any value to Neo? Are the transactions in Neo? What are we getting out of it? Alex Shevchenko's reply was very interesting. So he says that, yeah, at the moment we're not really putting transactions through Neo, but that when remote accounts and implicit accounts are live, there's going to be a way for these transactions that are from other blockchains to be triggered through near or to trigger something on near or something. I think what he was alluding to, and I don't want to put words in his mouth, was boss basically evolving the, into this aggregation layer where now we can have not just all the transactions on near, but also be able to capture the activity across other blockchains as well. He didn't say much more, but my mind started going, ah, oh, Ilya knows about AI and like, just a shit ton of data and what you can start doing if you have an aggregation layer. And so, yeah, that's like conspiracy number one. Can you comment, decline, move on? No, I guess I a little bit disagree. Every boss update component update is a transaction, right? I think if you imagine a world where there's millions and millions of boss components, which is not crazy, that's ambitious, like very ambitious, but it's not crazy. Then just the updates, the boss components themselves could lead to millions of transactions. And that's assuming that none of those components or actually interacting with smart contracts as part of what they're enabling for users, which certainly most of them are. Um, but anyway, <laughs> that's just, that, that's my thinking. Uh, as far as what Alex is talking about, so um, a couple of things there. But just very briefly, to put it in context, and I did make this forecast on Twitter, right now, as of the time of this recording, uh, September 6th, 10 a.m. Indonesia time, we just broke all-time high transactions in near. The Explorer is literally going through some sort of epileptic attack. The indexer is all fucked up. But we, yeah, we crossed over 3 million transactions in the last 24 hours. I think this is Cosmos from Singapore going live. And Sweatcoin is going live in a couple of days in the US and a few other countries. So I reckon we're going to like way break all-time high transactions. My view is that the foundation with all these web 2.5 deals, we're going to be comfortably sitting on 10 million transactions a day just to keep the blockchain alive, just from all these people that have no idea they're using near. And then we can focus on like builders and hackers and web three native products from scratch. So yeah, I, I guess that that was the context of people asking like, Hey, boss components, amazing, but can we get this, that volume of transactions? Especially if you think of things like developer rewards. Oh, like the contract secured revenue kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely a lot of aspects to that. And so what Alex was probably alluding to is that one of the goals of Boss is to become the, the interface layer for Web3, meaning that the majority of users who are interacting with Web3 are interacting with an interface that's powered by Boss. And where that gets really powerful is one of the challenges we have today is that we have dozens at least of chains, pretty much already dozens of L2s. And the community is very much pushing for a world of like hundreds or thousands of L2s. Sounds like kind of a nightmare, but let's imagine that, that pans out. Uh, and let's imagine the boss actually succeeds at being like the way people build their interfaces. That creates like a unified user experience and that creates a lot of opportunities for us to then build like an app, like identification slash authentication layer that sits above it. And that's also probably where like your asset should sit, meaning that you should have this like sort of master account that then controls a bunch of accounts on whatever chain you're interacting with. 
And you can't have a unified balance, but you could have one sort of way to control balances across a bunch of different chains or layer twos or whatever combination of those might exist. Um, and this is the idea of remote accounts is that you have this master account on Near. Maybe that Near is even the entry point for your assets. And then when you go to use an application, the chain that, that or layer two or whatever it is that that application is, is living on is, is completely abstracted away from you. And, and you're able to just sign a transaction or maybe not even explicitly sign or whatever it might be, interact with that application in the background your assets are moved to that chain through meta transactions are able to cover gas costs and, and you can interact and do whatever you want. And then you can see your balance like rolling up into this master account. So you could have assets across 50 different chains and you just see one unified balance. And like, the interfaces are all feel just as seamless and just as easy to use as possible. So that's, that's the end vision for this like remote accounts idea is that you would start on near, like you deposit USDC on near, uh, you create your account and it's on near. And then you go to use, say, Aave on Avalanche. And in the background, like an account on Avalanche will be like created or already exists, depending on the way the account is working. But in that setup, you're going the other way around. Because the way that I had understood remote accounts initially, like this was Ilya talking, like literally in a hallway in Korea last year. So I'm sure that's evolved and, and maybe didn't get the full picture. But the way that I had understood back then was you could use any wallet from any ecosystem, say Solana. And then you could use applications on near signing with your Solana wallet. Like the implicit account is a near account. And to me, that was pretty cool because I thought that would bring down the barrier of say, if you want to build, you'll be like, oh, users are on Solana. You can be like, actually, you can leverage the technology on near while pretending to be on Solana. Like Solana users don't even have to know that you're elsewhere. Like you give users a user experience that they're used to, even if it's worse. Like, uh, you know, maybe some people like the friction from Avalanche. I didn't know that you could go the other way. Sounds yeah, pretty well, cool though. We're actually working on both <laughs> because, so there's two groups. So groups, people who are already in crypto do not, usually do not want a new wallet. Everyone loves to complain about MetaMask, but the reality of it is everyone still uses MetaMask. Like I complain about MetaMask. I would, it's going to take a lot for me to use to switch for MetaMask because like it, it does work. And there's a lot of just like laziness that goes into <laughs> sticking with what you know. So we, we're going to do both. Like existing users, we don't want them to have to get a new wallet. And that's actually going to happen sooner. So like you should see what's coming out of Ref. There's going to be some interesting stuff coming out of Ref soon, a little, little alpha that, yeah, it's going more the direction of bring the wallet you have and just think you are wherever you want to be. <laughs> like that's Ethereum, great. Solana, great. Don't care. And, and, but then you'll be using smart contracts on Nier. And then there's the other way, which is you're brand new to crypto. Or whatever. And you're like, I want the easiest entry point to whatever it is I'm trying to do. Maybe they were like, I'm just trying to like, I'm sitting in, I don't know, Australia and I'm trying to buy T-bills and we finally got them tokenized and not to be a security. And the easiest way for you to do it is go to this like website called like treasuries.com and that's sitting on wherever it's sitting. But step one is going to be fund your account and you can do that, which will end up being in your account. And then step two is going to be signing a transaction on whatever chain it's on. And all of that will be managed from that initial account that you funded. And then maybe you want to go buy like whatever the new digital collectible is, like some Japanese like manga thing. Great. Like maybe that's running on like a star, the chain that's getting a lot of attention in Japan. Like, cool. You already have an account that happens to be on Nier and has that on Nier that is able to spin up accounts on these new chains and then move funds in the background without any like user level like need to care about that. And then you can interact with that account. And then your balances will be displayed in a single place, all powered by kind of the boss. So that's like net new users. But then existing users, yeah, 
no, come with MetaMask, trade on orderly using MetaMask, deposit funds into a contract, or not even. The vision we have is like with, with CCTP by Circle, like we want people to be able to just deposit USDC into what seems like the orderly protocol will actually just be like a transport. It'll be like the CCTP contract on Ethereum. Those assets are then burned on Ethereum, minted into like your account that has an orderly balance on near, and then you can immediately just start trading. And then you can go back or go to Arbitrum or go wherever using just like your MetaMask or Coinbase wallet or whatever. So like we actually want to have thugs for different audiences. How would it work going the other way? Because I know that this was like very early days on a Twitter space that only James Wall and I showed up, which is great because I got to have a, I think it was a clubhouse. This was a clubhouse days, oh, yeah. mate. That's vintage. <laughs> that it's is real vintage shit. But it was great because James Wall and I basically had a one-on-one conversation with a weird lurker in the background that didn't say anything. <laughs> and these were the days when gas fees and Ethereum were insane. And I asked about the possibility of, say, Avi deploying on Near and me being able to pay off my Avi loan on Near and it basically matching state sync on Ethereum. And he's, oh, yeah, you know, you know how James Ward talks. I don't have to impersonate him. But he basically said that right now we have light clients, which is a concept that I've learned more since. I find it fascinating. But that to do what I was describing, you would need to have four clients on both sides. And apparently it was in the roadmap and they would require buy-in from Ethereum. Yeah. If or when that happens, basically near literally becomes if 2.0, because then like the, the state sinks like it's not just a backup anyway this is too technical for me do you know what i'm talking about tell me a little bit more about exactly what you want to do what was the example it was like paying off your avi loan on ethereum yeah so at the moment the way i understand it is with the light clients say i don't know sweatcoin launch in the us for some reason every single validator on new york gets nuked as long as one computer has to state we can reboot the network by validating it with the light client on the ethereum side so the security on Near is actually not just our validators, but you would also have to take out Ethereum to take out Near. And some people like Shevchenko like to get creative and say that Ethereum is an L2 to Aurora. But anyway, there's another way to frame that. And I, yeah, I was talking to Alex about this recently, actually. And this is Alex's idea, but I, I agree with him, which is more saying that. So L2, the word, like the definition of an L2 is like not exactly consensus there's different definitions people have of what does it mean to be an l2 some people would say that you have to have this like the most recent state stored on ethereum for it to be an l2 which is like data availability like that's like data availability on on ethereum because what that means is that in order to exit an l2 everything you have is on ethereum which means that you're there's like very little trust in other parties except for ethereum right but another way to do an l2 that's become more popular now because ethereum is extremely expensive and will only get more expensive is this idea of moving data availability to another chain, which actually just means that all you're really doing on Ethereum is verifying that execution happened. I'm really verifying that it happened appropriately, but you're verifying that it happened like appropriately. And so in that scenario, Aurora plus the Rainbow Bridge is in a lot of ways exactly like, or like very similar security guarantees to an L2 that uses data availability on somewhere other than Ethereum. Because what's happening with the way the Rainbow Bridge works is you do have this light client that essentially is like relaying all of the block headers, which is like not exactly necessarily verifying the execution happened appropriately, but at least like verifying that it like did happen, that it's done. 
So like from a security perspective, it's not very different to think of Aurora plus the Rainbow Bridge as in a way, and Ethereum Validium is the term for it. That's like all the, all that Validium is really saying is that, all right, there's been like headers, like basically like execution happened probably appropriately. And I'm just like, we have that state and now we'll allow withdrawals according to that, plus the data that you have to get from another chain anyway, which in this case would be near. But in the Oblivion scenario, one computer has a state, they verify it with Ethereum because their block headers have to match, right? Because I think that's a theory. If we nuke out near and it comes back magically, but suddenly I have all of Ilias near Ethereum, they don't know what the transactions are, but they'll just say, hey, these block headers are not the same. Does that make sense? Yeah, more or less. Yeah. Okay. That was a fantastic segue into data availability. The second conspiracy theory, which comes from yours truly, by the way, thanks for replying to my messages. Sometimes it's really nice to see how fast and proactive people are. Sometimes people ghost me. Programs I ghost people and I, it's never intentional. It's just, I know everyone's busy. Time of day too. So I'm glad I got your message and I did and I can get back. That's what I aim to be. I, I know people are busy, surprisingly. Most of what I read in the blog post, I knew. I really like the approach of moving away from the tribalism and rethinking the ways in which blockchains can interact. I think that your narrative around asking what are the best components or the best pieces of the stack to be deployed in each blockchain is 100% spot on. The one thing that was new to me and that I found it to be very appealing because of what it may represent on like the value creation stack was a data availability component. There were two missions on it on the pod, on the sub stack. The first one was data availability from layer twos of on Ethereum. And then there was a forward looking projection around data availability from Cosmos blockchain. So yeah, I'd love if you could expand on it. I think we already had a bit of an intro on like how L2s work. And if you can have examples for seven, like a smart seven year old, that'd be great as well. Of course, just to recap, like data availability and what it is. So what an L2 does is, is it really mainly what it does is just offloads execution, but it doesn't actually offload the storage of the latest state. And one of the other things an L2 does, it, like the way the security model works is that, it, or at least in an optimistic role, we'll just stick with that for now, is that if, if you think that an invalid execution transition or like a state transition really happened, then you can submit a fraud proof, basically taking the latest state and proving that, proving essentially that like the transition was invalid so that you can retain your assets. So the way that most of these L2s work right now is they store the latest state of basically everything that's been happening on the chain, or at least the dip of the state so you can recompute the state on Ethereum. I think it's probably the dip because it's like a little cheaper to do that. But that's actually pretty expensive. And for most L2s, it actually accounts for the vast majority of their gas costs for the users. And L2s pass on all of the gas costs to their users, obviously, because otherwise it's coming out of the pocket of the core teams. And so this makes L2s not that cheap. Cheap is relative. It's obviously a lot cheaper than mainnet, but we've seen days where Arbitrum is like 10, 15 bucks to, to a transaction. And then for like, like a trans, maybe not a transfer, but a normal, like a Uniswap SOP or like something pretty, pretty normal. And then in contract deployments can be like actually pretty expensive. And so this definitely can rule out a lot of use cases. And part of the reason we built Nier is we have this very strong belief that 
you know, the cost should be like less than a cent for at least most transactions. Like if you're deploying like a 5,000 line boss component, yeah, it can be like 15 bucks. But if it's a simple transfer, it should be like a fraction of a cent. So it's, it, this is substantial. And, and if you can get data, like the data availability, this latest state off of Ethereum, then you can dramatically reduce the, the cost of transactions on these layer twos. And so the big question that people have is, can you do this in a way that maintains strong enough security guarantees? Because the, the consensus is that Ethereum has the strongest security guarantees. So anything other than its consensus is going to be like less secure. Obviously, yes, in near read. Sorry, go ahead. I don't know if I should let you finish, but just to like tab some questions. The first, which we can answer towards the end would be like, what is actually being stored? Also, I'm curious whether data availability and that storage is the same as a state. And now, how would you define like those security guarantees? Is it like the amount of power, if you look at proof of work or like the amount of money that it would take to overrun the network, like, like attack it maliciously? The idea of an L2 is mainly that you can always get your money out. Like you put your money into the L2, like someone shouldn't be able to fraudulently remove money from your account. That's, a, that's one of the security guarantees. Like you don't want that to go down. And the other thing is that you want to be able to get your money out no matter what. Um, and the way you get your money out is like you have to, in most of these things, you have to submit effectively. I mean, there's different varies, but like for the most part, you have to submit a proof that you still have the funds. They're like, no, despite all of your recent actions on the, the L2, like you deposited to Optimism, you traded around, got some different assets. You're like, if you want to get out, you basically have to prove that you have enough of the balance of those assets after all of your actions. Because the L1 doesn't know, right? Like the L1 isn't recomputing your balance. It's like your balance is actually transferred to Optimism. So Optimism effectively has a balance of your account in its state. And the updates to that state are happening, like the execution of that is actually happening like off chain. And so like your balance is not necessarily, or like in a way it's indirectly updated every so often based on your actions. And so the security guarantee really comes down to how up-to-date is that state on layer one. For what Optimism and Arbitrum are doing now is like for the most part, the latest state is what's being stored on chain. Like the way they do it, I think might use like state. To, I'm not exactly sure that's an architecture discussion. It doesn't really matter. Like the main, the, the thing that's important is that if Optimism were to like disappear, like they shut down the sequencer and they go away, it's important that me as a user who has a balance in there, that I can get my money out and I can get it out. Like I can get the accurate amount. Out. And the way that I'm gonna have to get that money out is I have to get the latest state. And then I have to construct basically like a proof to the contract that I then I send as another transaction to the contract showing like, see, this is the latest state and I want to draw up all of my money according to the balance in that state and then exit. So that's basically, that's like why data availability is important. Because, okay, so let's imagine that data was stored on AWS. Let's imagine that all Optimism had on in their contract was just like them posting like the Merkle root of the latest like Optimism block and that's it. And they shut down the sequencer. So they're not relaying that block anymore. So you don't have that Merkle right there. Like all, what you, you as a user, you have to then go get the data of the latest state and then create, took this proof and submit it. And if they shut down the sequencer and they shut off whatever the service are running in AWS that's providing this data, you're actually, you're like, fucked. You can't get your money out. Um, There's no other way to put it. Yeah, you, it's bad. That's a bad situation. And that's created this kind of spectrum of security, right? Where on the one hand, People believe in Ethereum as like the most secure layer. On the other hand, that security always has a cost. And that cost on Ethereum in particular is very high. 
Now there's a lot of talk about how can we maintain really high security guarantees while also getting the cost down dramatically. And so that's where you have solutions like Celestia and EigenDA, and those are the two main ones, but there's a few others that are probably building now. That gets us to Nier, like where does Nier play? So Nier is a layer one blockchain and every layer one blockchain also has to deal with data availability. In Nier's case, it's actually mainly around shards. We have these different shards and those shards have different state. Despite the fact that we have shards, we do still have one canonical blockchain and so you need state from each of those shards in order to compute a canonical block. And so there's actually a data availability problem within Nier 2 that's been solved through a couple of creative techniques. So that's almost an aside, but we're pretty familiar with the data availability problem. And another benefit we have from sharding is that generally storing state on Nier is extremely cheap relative to pretty much everything other than like Filecoin, which is really only designed to store like gigantic things and also not access them very often. So Nier is, is designed to store a good amount of state, way more than most blockchains, and also make, them, make that state highly available because that's important to the functioning of an L1 blockchain. Like you just, state has to be highly available. So basically we have cheap, highly available data and, and also secure data. We have quite good economic security guarantees, like hundreds of millions, billions of dollars, depending on the day. But we have a very long track record, very high uptime and pretty reasonably decentralized. I think 17 validators right now, and it's improving. Like fortunately, the number is continually going up and the vision is thousands and free. So the number of shards will actually get there. So all that together actually looks like a pretty good data availability solution. It's very secure, very cheap, very available. And interestingly enough, we also have some other advantages. We have a tool client that's part of the way that our bridge operates. And so it's actually pretty easy to read. One of the other things you want to do with data availability, if you use a non-Ethereum solution is you need a way for the L1 ideally to know, like the L1 contract to know that data has been made available somewhere. And, that, and then there's another aspect of like continually checking to make sure that they can still access it. And because we have this light client bridge, that actually is part of the solution where we're already essentially letting Ethereum know that data, that certain things have happened, which can include data being, being made available. So we actually, without doing any work specifically for trying to address the data availability problem on Ethereum layer two, we actually have an excellent product and we're the only one that's actually alive, which is another interesting thing. Celestia is going to be live. They're doing great work. EigenDA, also an excellent team doing great work, but yeah, we actually just have a really good product here which is interesting. So Celestia oh, would be a competitor on this front? For data availability specifically, yeah, Celestia is, they're a layer one. Celestia is a layer one that's specifically designed for data availability of layer twos. And Near is better? Near is live and has a very long track record of security and also way more reliable pricing because it's live. Celestia's pricing is ultimately, gonna, you're going to have to pay for data in the Celestia token. It's like all their costs mm -hmm. are... There's a lot of, there's just not live yet. They have all the, they have the cold star problem of having a launch. Like, Cause I met the team in Korea and there's something fascinating about the Ethereum community that they're like shapeshifters, but they also, they only shapeshift in the right atmospheric conditions, modular blockchains and data availability being offloaded elsewhere, et cetera. It's actually acceptable and a popular idea under that Celestia arm. Because it seems to be within the EVM family. And yeah, I'm just really curious. Do we have any examples of existing L2 projects that have done the data availability on Near? Like, how does it look like step by step? Can you give us the red meat so we can go out there and promote it as a solution? What would be the steps? Who should they talk to? Like, what's, what's next, Kendall? We need to get yeah, to 15 million question. billion TVL. Will be, I need to buy a house. 
So there's a, yeah, it's it, like the product offering is very different than what we typically do. It's a totally different type of market. And the data availability, the alternative data availability market is still actually very small. There's a lot of team, teams who are planning to use Celestia, but because Celestia is not live, none of these teams are live. Same with EigenDA. And so there's actually only one layer two that's actually, that I'm aware of, and we try to follow this pretty closely, that's live with alternative data availability. And it's actually not even live with any of the, yeah, what's up, man? Yeah, that's great. I like that. Yeah, so it's, yeah, like it's not really real yet. So like Mantle is the one layer two that's live with alternative data availability, basically like non-Ethereum data availability. And they're actually using a fork of EigenDA because EigenDA is not live yet. And, and honestly, it's like not really, not really there yet. Um, Are you saying Eigenlayer, like I-E-G-E-N layer? Yeah, so Eigenlayer is, so Eigenlayer has a product called EigenDA. Oh, so okay, okay, okay. Like Eigenlaking, right? Uh, That's what I know them for, yeah. Yeah, they're restaking, which is awesome, doing amazing stuff. They also have a, the, I guess what they're in Risen designing is like the first use case of restaking and like a really powerful one is a data availability layer that they call EigenDA. So EigenLayer is not quite live yet and that like, they just have deposits open for the restaking. They haven't launched any of the clients because it's a very complicated piece of tech and there's obviously a lot they have to do to get that. So yeah, it's their DA product that's not live yet, but that Mantle has licensed run in like test mode. But I, I honestly, it's pretty centralized now, which I mean, it's fine because it's, it's early days. But anyway, the point being, yeah, there's not actually that much out there yet. It's like still pretty nascent. So Celestia has been doing amazing work on really popularizing like the idea of Alt-DA and why they think that's powerful and useful. And I think they've, they've really done a lot around the modular blockchain narrative. So we just copy their messaging. I need the bullet points. We'll get this propaganda machine going. Yeah, like when it comes to Celestia, I think it's just you can't really trust the newly launched blockchain. And I probably would have told you the same about Nier three years ago. They're going to have problems. Nier had problems. And they might fix those problems. They might catch them. And hopefully they do. But I think there is, yeah, there's, there was, there's near misses that always happen. And you need time. You need time for the protocol to ossify. So like the best, like, let's put it this way. What advantages does Nier have over Celestia today? One, it's actually live. You can use Nier for DA today, like pretty easily. And in fact, we have a, I say we, the Pagoda team has a like a test we're running with the forked OP stack and that ripped out the Ethereum DA and put in near and it's working and it's 5,000 times cheaper than Ethereum for data availability, which is like a staggering, staggeringly cheaper offering. So it's, you can build it today. Like it's literally live. We have a long track record of security, like zero downtime in three years. Knock on wood. You're only as good as not having, yeah, it's, that's a tough problem. So I was on the near foundation cruise after near corner. And I actually have a video, which is hilarious because it's Hawaiian music and everyone's little cocktails. And then by the bar, there's four engineers all hunched on one computer because yeah, Sweatcoin had just launched and uh, yeah. uh, there were some things to monitor, let's put it that way. Yeah. Um, Look, the near misses happen. Ethereum had near misses, like a lot of them. And near had near misses too. And you don't hear about the near misses until the like months later when the when like the kind of report comes out, but which is what has the, to happen. The thing <laughs> but, about having no marketing is that no one hears about the near misses. <laughs> near misses are fine. Everybody has near misses. They're inevitable. In, a, in a, a complicated system like a blockchain, you will have near misses. And I don't mean, I, you should, we shouldn't even shame the misses because as long as you get back up and running and eventually get to like robustness, then that's just part of the game. Right? But anyway, 
regardless, if you know, the whole point of data availability is it's available. So ideally, like the chain you're running it on is like going to be able to report, uh, you know, the latest state. Otherwise, like you basically have to stop your uh, blocks or I mean, you don't have to, but like it gets a little risky. Uh, you like withdrawals can't essentially progress. Like you can in theory keep the sequencer running, but you'd be like the, the longer like the chain that your data is on is down, like you essentially have these this delayed state. And so like withdrawals get really wonky. Like people can only withdraw. Yeah. Anyway. There's like a bunch of issues that kind of come from that. A couple of pragmatic questions. So the first one would be, what's a sales book? Would it make sense for a team, at least initially, to be like super safe, to do data availability both on Ethereum and on a module or blockchain like Neo, just in case, while they get comfortable? And in that case, second part of the question, would it make sense for us, when I say us, your treasury, to basically offered to pay for all their data availability storage for the first six well, months. We actually have a way better solution that involves running a validator in the Aurora style where you can, so Aurora doesn't pay, or okay, they do pay a lot of near cost because they run like a, they run a couple of things. They run a couple of types of relayers. They have the meta transaction relayer that's like taking in ETH and paying near, and then they have the Rainbow Bridge relayer. And they have way excess returns from running that validator and paying out their staking rewards in Aurora and then taking all the near rewards, then their costs. Like they make, like they, it's like a pretty substantial excess because near yeah. is cheap. Near is like a cheap chain. So how do they work need. again? They've got the sequences in Aurora. So they, Not, they pay run the validator. So, okay. So they have costs in near. So they don't want to just have to pay those costs out of pocket. And if they did, what they could do is they could take the Ethereum they're getting paid for gas costs in Aurora and then sell it for near. But like, they don't really want to do that either. So what they've done that's very smart is they spun up a validator on near they set the the uh like the fee to 100%. So they take all the rewards. And so normally no one would stake to that cuz like why would you? Unless you just really like the Aurora team or something. And what, but that's a donation at that point. So instead what they do is they pay those uh validators like the people delegating to them in the Aurora token. Um and then they get all the near rewards that they can then use to cover all of their near expenses. Uh, and it just so happens that because the costs are so low they're actually just having, like, they have excess near. Uh, and they're paying for that, like, in Aurora, right? So it's not like it's free money or anything, but, like, it's, it is fun. And so what, what can happen is if a team wants to cover their near data availability costs, which are, again, shockingly cheap. So it wouldn't even be that much money anyway. But if they want to cover those near data availability costs, what they can do is they can spin up a validator, pay the validator rewards in their token, which is good distribution because, like, you're giving it to, like, people who are literally adding security to your network. And then they accumulate near that they can use to pay for the data availability costs. And if they have excess, I won't actually, that's too much alpha, but we have an idea that I think it's going to be, nah, I, I definitely can't share that one because it's not a done deal yet, but that I think could be really powerful. So anyway, like- It's all it, hypothetical. It's, it, we don't even know what we're talking about. It's just hypothetical. But yeah, we have some really good solutions that I think are pretty unique for that offering. So when it gets to like running, so running Ethereum and near for data availability, wouldn't provide you much benefit just because if you're going to pay the cost for Ethereum, like you should just use Ethereum. Near is not going to go down, but Ethereum is definitely not. Obviously, either one of them could, but Ethereum is very robust, right? There's no question. And has a lot of people who are very dedicated to keeping it online. Now, I think where it gets more interesting is maybe, I don't necessarily think that it's crazy to use multiple alternative DA layers if you're worried about security, because assuming that they're pretty cheap, and especially assuming you could do something like this approach of running a validator, then that actually might not be crazy. Using Nier and Celestia, for instance, or Nier and IVDA. 
just for some redundancy. Now, again, like there is a cost and that cost has to get borne by the user. There are a couple of considerations there, but I think we will see teams doing that. And uh, these are teams on Ethereum layer two? I'm trying yeah, to so identify like... Where... So roll up, okay. So in theory, you can have a roll up on any base layer. And Celeste has actually been pushing this idea of like sovereign roll ups, which is like, Rollups that basically, just, it's rollups without a base layer, but really they're using Celestia for the base layer. So it's almost like, okay, if, we, if we're pushing rollups on, okay, I mean, like Aurora is a rollup on near. It's not technically a rollup, but you could make it a rollup. Like you could just, right now, Aurora execution happens on near, but like you could have Aurora execution happen. Like Aurora could run a centralized sequencer, do execution, post a state route to near, store the data, the latest state on near, and then that's like a true rollup running on near. And so Celestia is pushing this idea, basically, of people running rollups just on Celestia. So that's like another way it could be used. But the reality of it is like the, the biggest benefit of using Ethereum as a rollup is, is mainly access to assets and all the integrations for Ethereum, more so than anything. And security too, but realistically, I think a lot of these blockchains are actually pretty secure. They're like secure enough for most use cases. And so I, I don't know that the like sovereign rollup on Celestia, like I, I get why they're doing it, but I don't really think it makes that much sense. The reason that NearDA is an exciting product is just because it's a product for some exciting teams in the Ethereum ecosystem. Like at the end of the day, all we care about is that we're able to get people like the best builders, like using Near for part of their stack. Ideally, it's for all of their stack, but there's still value in it being for just the front ends on Boss or just DA on NearDA or just the smart contracts. There's even ways to do that. Like we've, We've had teams who have wanted to like offload settlement to near for an order book, for instance, which you can't do on Ethereum, but then keep a lot of the user layer and the asset layer on Ethereum. So I, I think that's how we... Yeah, I was going to ask, we're, we're trying to unpack that like web, because I know that once you have the front end and you're engaging with near, then you can do other things. You mentioned as well, Aurora and uh, near can have cross-country calls. So maybe they can deploy some of their contracts on Aurora and... Do the calls with near. I know that you're withholding alpha, which hurts my feelings, but I'm wondering, are we going to see a similar push for DA as we've seen for boss, like next round of hackathons, are they going to be bounties for applications to deploy their data availability on near as we have now yeah. deploying the front ends on, on boss? So DA is an interesting product in that it's it's a very deep tech product. Like I think Celestia has done a pretty good job of kind of trying to bring it up like more and make it like a little bit friendlier, more approachable. But I didn't know what Celestia was doing for a while. It took a while. I like dove in and finally bit the bullet and read about L2s and how they actually work. And then was like, ah, okay, now I get it. So that's one aspect. And then the other aspect is, yeah, again, the market right now for data availability is tiny. There's, by my count, there's maybe, there's like less than 10 teams, probably. And maybe there's a hundred, but there's less than 10 very high quality teams who are all in. And not to say those other teams aren't high quality, but they're like all in and they're going to do it and they're going to build the community and they're going to do all those things they got to do. Because like you basically, your market is L2s. So unless you're planning to launch an L2, and I know there's this narrative right now around like, everybody should have an L2. I very strongly believe that not everyone at all should have an L2. Unless we just want to make user experience like absolutely a total nightmare, which is probably going to happen anyway. That's what we do in here in crypto because we love that. But no, like that, I think that's the challenge is like, 
having a hackathon for data availability is you can do it, but it, it's different. It's, I guess it depends why people build at hackathons. Maybe if it's just people who want to understand L2s and data availability more and they just wanted to go check it out, that's great. But like, it's not actually an important thing to do. Like the way that you take data availability to market is like purely hand-to-hand. It's like straight up B2B, like us going, sitting down and having very long drawn out conversations and diagrams with these like 10 teams building building L2s who are considering all DA. <laughs> I was listening to a podcast on the way here in the Jakarta traffic, which is insane. There's something really zen to me of being in a car in mad traffic, but I'm not driving. That is true. Yeah, I, I get that. Motorcycles everywhere and people honking. And I'm just like, <laughs> anyway, the, yeah, it's pretty funny. The podcast, I'll share it with you. The Knowledge Project, I think the latest one. Dude was talking about like product and where some of the conflict sometimes arises between companies, et cetera, teams. And he identifies three levels of product that I find really useful and that we may be able to draw some parallels here. The first one is execution, impact, and optics. Product leaders are usually on the execution side. What are the things that they can do with the resources and the time they have available? That leadership is usually on the impact side. They're more worried about the go-to-market, how is it going to affect the value of the brand, the bottom line. And then optics is, are you getting credit or are you pretending basically fake it until you make it vibe? And I think that depending on how you slice data availability, execution is done, at least the technical implementation. What's left would be the crossover between execution and impact, B2B sales, and, and maybe the impact there is somewhat limited. And maybe where I'm coming from is that third optics category where we may not really have that much room to grow, but we just want to make sure that we own that area and that people know what's possible. Because we go back to where we started about are people building products or are we not building products because we're just operating with the constraints of the old technology. If you tell someone, hey, build on layer 15, data availability goes to Ethereum, it's going to be expensive anyway. That is fundamentally different from, yeah, so last year's coming, data availability is super cheap. So I think that, to be blunt, we missed the boat on account abstraction and sharding and all these really cool features that we have. And I, I just think that what would be the minimum viable way to place data availability on the map? Um, yeah, we want to win some big deals. That's what we're trying to do. And fortunately, that's actually looking pretty good. Sounds like you have them, but uh, you don't want to tell me. Like, to be honest, it's still super early. I was probably the first instance of somebody talking about data availability on, air, on, on a podcast. Like, this is super early. It started organically where a couple of teams reached out and were like, hey, like, Nears has really cheap state. And that's the main thing. But it's still super early. And I think there's still a question in a lot of people's minds, including mine, to be frank, of what does the alternative DA market actually look like? Because Ethereum is trying to scale their, their data availability. They have this like new AIP that's specifically aimed at scaling data availability for A44. That's like a, it's like a 10x improvement, but that's actually not going to be near, nearly enough. Yeah, honestly, the stage we're at right now is just understanding how big this market is going to be. And the main way we're doing that is by talking to everybody. We're talking to everybody who's involved in the market, including ideally Celestia to try to understand like, because I think I really respect that team and I think they've done good stuff. So yeah, I mean, what, what do we got here? Because it's basically just like, where do we place our focus, right? And I think boss is epic and is maybe the most epic thing we've done and there's so much work to do that really should be an important sir we're reaching the three hours so if you want i've got a rapid fire round 
Yeah, let's do it. Okay. First, we didn't touch on NDC much. Three of your superstars, Eugene, Matt, Sam Padimia. Yep. Are running for NDC roles. I'm really curious on how do you see that playing out as the employer in terms of like their time commitment or them getting distracted in terms of some people that may criticize oh, proximity or other official entities are taking over NDC and now it's becoming centralized. Is there anything at all that you're thinking as you and the and your core team players are getting more involved? The most important thing as far as proximity goes is like they're each running in their own volition, like they're running as individuals. As there's no, yeah, that that's a really important point for I think everybody. It's like it has nothing to do with proximity. At the same time, NDC is clearly very important for the near ecosystem. And if people from our team decided to run because they think they can add value to that and the community agrees, I think that's important. And so we certainly want to support them in that. But yeah, I'm not, I'm not really worried about it from, I think that work, then our most, our main mission as proximity is just to further the ecosystem. And that's really important to do, work to do to further the ecosystems. I see that as within the realm of the type of things that, that at least the individuals who work for proximity should be involved in if not proximity itself. Spoken like a true politician, I like it. Uh, I've always appreciated that like first principles thinking, like you go like one layer back, be like, no, we just want to advance the ecosystem. It looks different, but they're doing it as individuals. It's actually pretty good, pretty good. Okay, second governance related question. And this one might be a bit of a curveball, an oddball. This is also something that I have not seen in many places, but you just seem to know things. You just not three hours are not enough to break through the shell. What can you say about DAOs governed by ChatGPT or AI assistance tooling? Ah, oh man, I love that space. Okay, NDC is doing amazing work. I will start with that. Generally, I don't like governance and crypto. I just don't think they meld very well. I think that crypto's real magic is where there's, it's just economics. That's like Bitcoin and Ethereum and, and Uniswap and newer protocols like Ajna. They're just like, those are my favorite implementations of crypto. So I've never been a huge fan of the DAO trend for those reasons. And I think what's really interesting about ChatGPT AI kind of govern protocols is that in a way it's, it, it's, it enables those types of systems to still be governance minimized where like you like defer governance, you have to build like institutions and like entire systems around these things, but you like defer governance to this prediction engine or however you want to classify LLMs in a way that like allows them to truly be autonomous. Really autonomous systems are really what crypto is all about. And autonomous just means like people are not in the middle making decisions. People are slow and political and all these things. And, and like the best way to do that right now is you have no governance and it's pure economics. And fortunately, things like LLMs and whatever comes after them, which will be way better, actually let us like even expand the prop, like the, the design space of truly autonomous systems. So I absolutely love that space. Uh, I think it's very early, but there's already some things you can do. And I think that, yeah, Ilya is very bullish on that too. And I think he's exactly right. that like, we're going that way for sure. I listened to him first on the Laura Shin podcast. And then I saw the piece that he wrote for Coindesk. And I was this close from making a video. Be like, just get rid of all the, of the NDC. Just all those motherfuckers, just get rid of them. Just bring in the AI oh, models yeah. and we'll be, be done with it. Dude, I think there is a window that's, I'm not even, I'm not going to give a time frame, but that's like sooner than almost anybody thinks. 
where I'm going to be bringing the bell, kill all the DAOs, replace them immediately. They're the path to, we need NDC right now. But yes, I'm very bullish that we will get, we are not very far away from a place where it, a lot of things, at least, will be governable by AI. And gradually over time, we'll get to where dearly end. So this DAO is actually bringing the best and the worst of two things. Sure, the assets are on chain and it's transparent, but then you bring in humans and most of them we haven't really, we're actually worse than a traditional corporation because a traditional corporation, you have HR and recruiting standards and performance reviews. In DAOs, we have all the issues of human collaboration with no other processes. So yeah, I'm not entirely sure they're going to evolve. Hopefully the AIs enable the humans, like we're never fully removed, but it was reminiscent of, I think Dilbert said several years ago that Trump was going to be the last human president in the United States. And it makes me think a lot because first, I think Biden may technically count as a zombie, so he could still be right. And uh, I thought Musk was going to run, but he's not, he was not born in the United States. He's an alien. So that would also not count as human. But anyway, I think I'm going to run as a, for the transparency commission to at least be part of that last human crop that is involved and then I'll fully embrace the AI. I'm, I'm humble enough to acknowledge that the machines will do this shit way better. Yeah, I like that perspective. I think that's definitely where we're going. I, I want to do whatever I can to help us get there faster too, because I think it's actually going to be a market improvement. Uh, I'll be the Trojan horse. I'm sure that your proximity peers will help us as well. That's, I think that's true. Yeah. <laughs> Next one. I am very intrigued about the Aether protocol, A-E-T-H-E-R, S-E-I network, say network. Oh, yeah. I think they launched, they had some novel approach to things and within three weeks they shut down. What happened? Are there any lessons there? Anything we should be paying attention to? Oh, I honestly, I hadn't heard of them until they did their kind of post winding down. And yeah, I don't know, I went on a little bit of a rant today against them. <laughs> I don't know if you saw that tweet. <laughs> That's precisely why I'm asking because yeah, yeah, it really I piqued that, my curiosity. Yeah. Nothing against them. I don't know those people. I don't know those guys at all. I have not, no context to them. I hadn't heard of them. I just read the post. But I, I think that, yeah, okay. What that really came from was like, their post was mainly blaming people other than themselves. And I just don't see how you can launch a product and then like three weeks in, decide the world is against you and like, you should just shut it down be and it's not your fault. Like it, it has nothing to do with you. And they were like, oh, like Say's launch was terrible and it's so hard to build in crypto. I'm like, yeah, I don't know. Like I'm not going to evaluate Say's launch because I don't, honestly don't know that much about it. But yeah, it is hard to build in crypto, sure. But I, come on, three weeks in and then, and look, and I was, I even was going to give them the benefit. I was like, maybe these guys are good builders and like they did because their points were not necessarily bad. And, but then I read their white paper and I was like, wait a minute, their white paper is literally, we cloned Aave V3 straight up and we adopted Radiant tokenomics and that was, the, and then launched on say, and they're like, it's amazing. Like we're changing the world. So, and that just really frustrated me because what that was symptomatic of is that there's been a lot of builders who entered in 2021, 2022, maybe even a little 2020, who like the things were easy for them. Like they showed up and they were like, we're building our next chain and we're like the first thing and they just got users. It was like, literally, if you build it, they will come. And it's almost never like that. And when it is like that, it never lasts like that for long. And I just, it rubbed me the wrong way because there have been a lot of people in this space like that over the last couple of years. And fortunately and unfortunately, because the times are tough, but they're all getting shaken out. 
And I want to just make a point. Look, you can still get traction in this market. You have to fight tooth and nail for it. And you have to do something like very legit and real and new. I think Ozna is a good example. Like they actually did something truly different and they're getting rewarded for it with traction. And these things are still happening. So that is just like a point of no shade really on Aether. I don't know them and who knows the true reasons behind their shutdown. But we, we, ultimately, we want people in this space who are actually pushing the boundaries and actually moving the needle. Not ju- it's not just easy money. And it's definitely not easy money now. So if you're here for easy money. What? Not easy money? Bro, I need to buy a house. I I love that you bring it up because it's actually two problems. First one is that hustle mentality that maybe we've lost. And as you say, maybe we had it easy. But to me, and this is a war that I fight a lot because I defend near, for better or worse, is that people need a reason to be and believe in an ecosystem. So not only do you have people trying to launch products and have a little bit of hype around it, you know, fork it, remix it, rebrand it, but then they also go to ecosystems that they think have users or have liquidity. Like we saw this cycle with app, probably it's going to come with Sui, anyone with an airdrop, optimism, arbitrama. And that's when I also raise the flags. That's sometimes where I also... Not to throw shade to any team in specific, but you do got to, I think you start questioning some team's motivations. If they appear to be optimizing for that like short-term gain, I know nothing about the team either. Literally only know what you've told me, but it does seem a little bit sus that three weeks in, they've given up on development. And they give up I've the seen space. Like they're literally like, our time in Web3 is over. And I was like, see ya. <laughs> like good riddance. Come on, guys. And that. <laughs> and I actually tweeted about it this morning. There's a paradox of, dude, I remember my dad told me when I was, this when I was a kid and it was slightly mind fucking, but I, I keep coming back to it. It makes sense. My dad told me that banks only lend money to people that don't need it. If you prove that you can pay the loan back, that's when they give the money to you. When you really fucking need it, they're like, maybe risky, but if you've got assets, no worries. The perfect client is the one that can pay off the credit card tomorrow, the full balance, but they don't. They, That's they true. keep paying interest. And yeah, there's a paradox there between foundation grants. Sometimes, yeah, sure, they're too late, but they tend to offer help and money to teams. Not necessarily they don't need the money because maybe in this bear market, everyone's a little bit fucked, but you have to prove yourself. That's like the whole point, right? It's almost don't call me, we'll call you kind of thing. So yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, this project, they do all the marketing push, they do whatever think was necessary. They may not have been able to secure that level of support, which by the way, I see those very early stage grants as exit liquidity. You've de-risked, you get a few hundred thousand dollars or the few weeks worth that you did, and you don't give a fuck from there on whether it succeeds or not. It's a good payout. So yeah, thank you for calling it out and for bringing us back to center and product. Last thing before I let you go, Jeff Bessinger, Bessinger, Tori Jeff messaged me yep. and we're starting to get together to see if we create like a product community on near to talk about like products, user journeys and growth in general, less in engineering terms and more on the product side, user testing, all those things. So if you want to get involved. Yeah, man, I'm yeah, I mean, You should definitely involve MJ, who's he's doing most products at, he's like our head of product at Proximity. But yeah, I'm happy to be involved as well. There you go. Two is a awkward, three is a threesome, and four is a party. Great. There we go. 
Who is it? Kendall, thanks so much. I am really struggling to believe we smashed past three hours. This has been an incredible conversation. Yeah, no, it was great, man. Thanks for having me on. You should talk to your boss and make sure that you're able to travel to the next event. Yeah, my boss is tough on that, <laughs> but I will be at NearCon. <laughs> so I'll definitely we'll miss you at Near APAC and I'll see you soon. All right. Yeah. See you, man. Have a good one. That's the end of another episode. As always, I just want to thank you for listening because let's be honest, you are amazing. And I also want to remind everyone that everything contained on this episode is for entertainment and educational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast shall be construed as financial, medical, or any other type of advice. And you should always consult with licensed professionals before making any financial decisions. Make sure that you like and subscribe so that you stay up to date with the latest episode. We've got a steamy hot pipeline of guests that will keep you entertained right through the bear market. Stay safe out there and I'll see you soon. Bye.